Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. It's six after the hour, top of the morning to you. Is that my leprechaun voice, James? Kind of. Can I hear your leprechaun voice? My le- leprechaun voice? Uh-huh. It's a trap. <laughs> yeah, Don't do it. Go ahead, try it. What? What's going to happen, Matt? What? It's magically delicious. Okay, he's not doing it. Are you doing it? Top of the morning to you. <laughs> oh, wow. His is much better than yours. His is really good. He, uh, he's he been channeling the leprechaun, whatever that means. It's my spirit animal. Well, spirit thing. We'll call, we'll is call that, him oh, is that your Chinese uh, animal? Yeah, your, my zodiac your is zodi- the leprechaun. Okay, great. Wow, I'm a Taurus. Wow. <laughs> the bull. Anyway, welcome to the program. This is the first hour of three. And remember, on this show... We try to take you somewhere different. You know, we everybody does the news. Come on. But what we like to do is help you see the human side of every story, take each story maybe a little bit different or deeper. You've heard of certain things going on. Today we're going to be getting into RoboCop. We have somebody, one of the top 100 finalists for the mission to Mars. Well, it's not RoboCop. Well, it's not. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. It's, it's a bionic. We're going to talk. A bionic, a bionic a appendage. Hand, hand yeah. But, but it's even more than that. It's it's a hand that feels. Yeah, you could extrapolate it out in the future to a RoboCop no, situation. No, we don't want. You know what? I don't want a RoboCop. I don't know. I want. But this story is incredible. Yes. We'll be talking to Greg Clark, who's a professor in in at the University of Utah, and is basically giving people who have lost limbs a shot at having a fairly functional, normal feeling appendage. It's powerful. Yes. Then we're going to Mars. Cody Reader is going to join us later in the hour. This guy, one of the top 100, selected. One of the 100. He's one of the. He's he's. We're calling him the top 100. Okay. <laughs> that would imply there was more. More than 100. Yeah. There's he's in 100. the top. He's. I, I'm just saying. He's a finalist. He's a finalist. He's a final 100, but he's he's top of the 100. Okay. I mean, I don't have a vote. But if you did. But if I did. Cody Reader. I'm sending you off planet. I mean, he's going to Mars, man. And if he wins this, I guess it's winning. If he wins and is elected to be one of the first in, of the first of four to go to Mars, guess what? You're done. You're gone for life. There's no return trip. There's no, yeah. There's no return fare. Yeah. It's like a prisoner leaving the prison. They just give you a hundred bucks and a one-way ticket out. Good luck. Cody Reader will be talking to you as well. And then later in the show, just great stuff. We're going to talk about spanking. Because, I mean, looking at you two, obviously spanking didn't work. Not to be rude. Thanks. Not to be rude. <laughs> but we're going to get into spanking. And um, I don't know. We just got a great show. Great show. And then Ron Hager is going to be joining us, teaching us about health in the nine hour. <clears throat> Actually, not. We won't call it the nine hour because... For some, it'll be the noon hour. In the third hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Are we supposed to focus on Eastern time or I guess. local time? Or See, so it's 9.09 Greenwich Eastern time. Meantime? Or I think they wanted Greenwich. UTC, whatever they call it. Meantime. That. 
Let's just focus on the headlines. Headlines. headlines? Was, is do. there any news? Anything going on? Putin. Oh, he said it. Allegations on Putin. No, not allegations. Uh, Vlad. We'll call him Vlad. Vlad. What's Vlad up to? Vlad Putin says a war with Ukraine is unlikely and he hopes it will never happen. Now, a lot of people do, don't understand that because a lot of people believe there's already a war underway. Unofficially, sort of. I mean, Allegedly. Well, I mean, tr- planes were being shot down. The airliner was shot down. I mean, there's apparently artillery flying. Russia's, I guess. People I, are I th- dying. I think their official position is that they're supporting uh, what we are seeing in our media called the rebels. They see them as freedom fighters. Yeah, they're supporting their freedom fighters to who are trying to free... Ukraine and bring it back to Russia. Yeah, their the, the eastern portion of Ukraine and bring it back to Russia. It is yeah. interesting when you see both sides of this where yeah. the Ukraine government is oppressing the freedom fighters, but from the Ukraine side, they're Russian-backed rebels. Mm. and It's kind of interesting. It's a mess. But there's but there's not a war. But they're saying, he's saying what? The ceasefire from last week, surprise, yeah. Yeah. did not hold. Weird. As we saw, you know, pictures of missiles launching. And uh-huh. um, so... His comments come as the foreign minister of France, Germany, Russia, and Ukraine are due to meet in Paris today to try to get the peace deal back on track. Well, come on. Let's do that, Vlad. And then it, I, I found this this morning. Pro-Russian rebels in Ukraine claim that they have started to pull back heavy mm-hmm. weapons, which is part of the, the peace deal. Other reports indicate that the rebels are still very much armed and fighting. <sighs> Who so to believe? Take your, your pick on what's going on over there. Ah, the tangled web. ISIS abducted 90 Syrian Christians. I heard this. This is is like, this is genocide. They're killing a a religious group. Yes. Ah, That's after 30 that were killed a couple days ago. Uh, The abduction took place in a rural village near the town, uh, northeastern part of the country. I start naming towns. It's not going to give anyone a frame of reference. Well, plus you're so off. Well, that's you. On you on Syrian towns. <laughs> the monitoring group, uh, this came from a, a monitoring group of the area. ISIS reportedly seized the Assyrian Christians as they retreated during a Kurdish offensive. So, uh, so they were, were they, yeah, they were just trying to flee. They're caught up in the fighting between the Kurdish, which are the, 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 the group that actually have made a bunch of inroads against ISIS is these Kurdish uh, fighters that were supporting yeah. with. Airdrops, See, but. this is though. This is now baiting. So they're baiting, and all of the Christian countries are going to start seeing this and massacres, and then game on. That's that, kind of that what's could happened. Be the, the one end result, at a time, yes. don't you think? One at a time. They just keep, and and they're ISIS is doing an incredible PR job. They are. We've read quite a bit media about that. Job. So I told you they have mic flags now. They have mic flags. Some of the videos they've been putting out recently, there is a reporter who's walking around interviewing people, and he has a microphone with that box with just the, below with called a mic flag, and it has the, the ISIS logo, logo ISIS. and everything on it. See, so they're organized. That's why it's a true caliphate, because they have mic flags. That is a sign of a true caliphate, is they have... A strong it, media it, presence it with looks mic more, flags. more professional than just a, it totally does. a mic. And that's what they're trying to do is put, put forth that sort of image of we are uh-huh. professional. It this makes is them look the recruiting like infrastructure. Too. Yeah. Oh, okay. Crazy. McConnell back, backs off from shuttering the Homeland Security. See, this is it. So Homeland Security, they have till Friday 
They've got to get this thing done or everyone in the Homeland Security world unemployed. So it says, well. Employed, just not paid. Not paid. Because Volunteer. They're, they're seen as vital employees, which yeah. means you work even though you don't get paid. Yeah. So, I mean, you know. I found that interesting. Which a lot of people feel like they do anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Gover- so, government work, people kind of feel they're underpaid for the, the yeah. work that they do. So uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced Monday night that he would not pursue threats to effectively shut down Homeland Security. Instead, he said he planned to introduce a bill that would block President Obama's executive orders on immigration separate from the DHS funding, which is set to run out on Friday. They were both connected before, which is a little trick they do to kind of strong arm certain things to go through and in, in voting procedures. Mm. But uh, the Democrats have been standing in the way, and it said this came because uh, the Senate failed for a fourth time on Monday to push through the House bill to uh, to fund both DHS and to prevent Obama's immigration plans. Oh, so. see, it's happening. So, and plus, the XL pipeline yep. needs to be signed this week. I guess it's going to the president. Yeah, he's we'll already he's said he won't do that. <laughs> see, so this is the beginning of uh, is something really going to happen? Are we more stalemate? More? Are we going to actually see progress? I'm having, uh, I'm betting on more stalemate. Yeah, that's usually how. Except, it's out. I think they will get the home land security thing done. They have to. Gas prices are going up. Mm. Average price a gallon of gas in the U.S. rose 13 cents in the past two weeks, bringing it up 26 cents since the price has bottomed out after a nine-month slide ended in January. Too good to be true. Uh, average price 2.33 a gallon. Highest price gas is in uh, Los Angeles, 2.91 a gallon. Lowest price, Salt Lake City, dollar ninety one. Where? Oh, dollar eighty seven. I saw. Yeah, I saw. I saw below dollar ninety one today. Ah, so. see, good to be in Salt Lake. There you go. But you remember, uh, it was also one of the highest. Yes. about a year ago. It depends on the day. Well, okay, great news. I mean, horrible news. Horrible but, news, but yeah, it was well delivered. Ah, uh, really? No, uh, it was, that was fantastic. Okay, good. Yeah. We uh, we've got. A great guest coming up. We're going to take a break. Dr. Gregory Clark is going to join us. He is the leader of the research team that is helping to restore, can you believe it, feeling? Using a prosthetic arm, for example, they can actually get it where your brain and your thoughts can move the hand and can create sensation and feeling for that person changing people's lives. Think of how many people are coming back from war, military service, having lost a limb. Holy cow. We're going to be talking to the cutting edge, about the cutting edge technology um, for basically the bionic hand. This is the Matt Townsend Show back after this break. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man. Better than he was before. Better. Stronger. Faster. Welcome back, everybody. We can rebuild him. Oh, that was one of my favorite childhood shows right there. I even had a Steve Austin Bionic Man doll. And you could roll up his skin on his arm and see his Bionic arm. 
Now, by the way, that was like 30 generations ago. And amazingly, folks, we're there. We are so getting there. For years, amputees have had to live with the restrictions of prosthetic limbs that provided limited assistance and even more limiting in their control. But recently at the University of Utah, they just awarded a $1.4 million uh, research, I guess, grant to continue research in the technology. Um, They gave it to uh, the Utah Slanted Electrode Array. Okay, this is technology that uses 100 electrodes, and it connects those electrodes to the nerves in an amputated arm, and that allows people to actually move their own hand or their own prosthetic and feel and feel those movements just by thinking. Dr. Gregory Clark is a professor at the University of Utah. He's the leader of this research team for the Utah Slanted Electrode Array, and um, we welcome him to the program. Dr. Clark, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, listeners. You bet. It's such a great—I love the story that I read about it because it involved two or three um, people who had lost their hands. They were amputees in tragic accidents— and um, their their typical prosthetics that they were using were frustrating. They weren't delivering results. And Dr. Clark, you're changing their lives. You you've, you're figuring out a way to get our thoughts to actually move electronic devices. Is that basically the idea? That's exactly correct. What we're hoping to do is to attach a very advanced prosthetic hand that we, the University of Utah, will not make, and attach that hand directly to the user's own arm nerves, as you said so that they can move the prosthetic hand much like a biological hand and feel the prosthetic hand very much like a biological hand. We're not quite there yet. Uh, our four subjects that we've had volunteering for these trials to date have uh, been doing it in a temporary fashion, and they've moved a computer virtual hand hmm. and felt information back from it. The long-term goal of the present project is to develop the technology sufficiently that users at the end of the uh, experiments will be able to take a pr- advanced prosthetic harm home with them and touch and feel the real world and interact with the real world. Does, does the feeling – that is such an interesting idea. When they feel it, they're, it's really being felt in their brain. That's exactly correct. So but it feels hand, like your hand. That's exactly correct. Weird. So if your hand still exists, in your brain and your brain still works and there's no reason it wouldn't just because you've lost your hand then if we can activate the neural circuits in the brain then the person will feel their hand just as if it were really there and in fact a very similar technology has been used to restore hearing to the profoundly deaf Hmm. if you stimulate the nerves coming from the ear in such a way that it mimics the pattern that would normally be produced by sound then the person will not only hear sound but they can even hear speech Oh, my heavens. So, I mean, is this how new is all of this technology? Depends on how far you want to go back. Uh, The cochlear prosthesis to which I just referred has been in use since about the 1980s. Uh, Our attempts to explore the somatosensory system are uh, somewhat further behind, but individual attempts to look and talk to individual fibers in the arm nerves have been going on for literally decades. Hmm. That's really a testimony to the vision and the persistence of scientists and engineers throughout the world who can't just do this in one fell swoop. 
but start off simply and incrementally build upon previous research and previous advances to begin to bring this technology to people to really change their lives. So this is why when our mother says, you need to do science, you need to go do your science, <laughs> go study, this is why we need science. This is one reason. I'm, I'm a big fan of universities that, that um, speak to all of the human dimensions, the liberal arts, as well as the sciences, as well as the engineering, as mm. well as math and STEM uh, technologies. I think they speak to different aspects of, of our human experience, but certainly uh, the ability to profoundly affect people's lives is very poignant and very meaningful. Well, and it, it even says that, I guess, a lot of the people that have phantom pains um, in, in a missing hand, the, you know, the people that have already had an amputation, they still have their phantom pains. They can still feel Charlie horses, warm sensations, shocks, carpet burns. And I guess this prosthetic, I guess your belief is that um, by, by doing this prosthetic with the electrodes, um, it actually might eliminate some of those phantom pains? That is correct. It's still somewhat speculative, but there's evidence out there to indicate that such benefits may indeed be possible. The problem is that we've already alluded to the hand still exists in the brain. Yeah. And if it's painful, this poses a bit of a puzzler, doesn't it? Yeah, it How does. do you treat a body part that doesn't even exist? Uh-huh. So you can't uh, massage it, you can't move it, uh, but if we could restore the sense of feeling of the real hand by talking to the nerve fibers, then they would experience their body being whole again instead of just disconnected, and then they would potentially be able to move their hand to relax it. They'd be able to see their hand move, and that Uh altogether would create a body sense that their real hand is back, and it might stop hurting. It's interesting. There's such kind of a body-mind thing here, connection. It's your brain knows or feels like it still has the hand, and maybe even just the ability to, like, wiggle your fingers might, you know, work that pain out. That's amazing. That's correct. That's, um, I guess, does this have, I mean, where does this end? It seems like then all of a sudden we could probably create a kidney and then connect the nerves to the kidney, too. That's correct. And interestingly enough, at the University of Utah, uh, Wilhelm Kolf, uh, who more or less was uh, the father of the present department in which I'm currently working, uh, was one of the key inventors of the artificial kidney, as well as the key inventor of the artificial heart. So in a certain sense, this does build upon a very long and honored tradition. Yeah. However, interacting with the nervous system is really something different because it speaks to the human experience in ways that perhaps the kidney or the hip or even the heart do not. Mm-hmm. If you replace a person's heart with even an artificial heart, they still are exactly the same person. But if you <laughs> go to the limit and replace a person's brain, they wouldn't be the same person. True. And that's, that's uh, an extreme example, of course, but it begins to capture what it means to be human and what it means to interact with the world in a very human way. And our hands, although they're physical devices, are one of our primary means of expression, one of our primary means of exploring the world, and one of the primary means of receiving feedback about that world. So holding your child's hand or getting to play with your child or just even typing on a computer, these are all things that make a real difference in the human experience. I mean, totally. When you look at a a child a baby who will immediately put their hands in their mouths to create 
this experience of life and just suck their thumb or, you know, keep sucking on their fingers. I mean, the hands are the means to to touching the world. And you're now bringing actual feeling back. I mean, that I guess it's finally you're somehow connecting the nerves to the brain to the electronic device, I guess, is the real connection. That's exactly right. So one way to think about it is that the nerves are like a hotline between the brain and the body and back again. And those hotlines still exist, it's just that there's no sensor on the end of it that can interact with the real world. But if we activate those wires and send signals along those wires to the brain, those wires are still plugged into the brain. So the brain will receive the signals just like it normally did, and it will experience the world just like it normally did, as if it was coming from the hand. So interesting. Because really, when you think about it, you're, you just you have fingertips, and those nerves, if you could somehow go stimulate those nerves, I guess it would happen further up in the arm. Um, it, you can create, I, I guess, virtually the exact same sensation. If we could do this perfectly, and of course we can't, yeah. nor can we exceed it a la Steve Austin, uh, we would really indeed truly create the full experience. Wow. Now, we have far fewer electrodes than there are nerve fibers in the nerve, um, but we still have several electrodes, and we can begin to recreate that experience. In our present subjects, he's had a hundred, more than a hundred different points of contact or points of movement. And let me expand on that second point a little bit. It's certainly the case that what we call touch is a very important aspect of this sensation. But there's another aspect to it that we haven't quite touched on, so to speak, yet. And that's the sense of movement. So listeners were to close their eyes and move their hand out and just very gently touch the tip of their nose, they would be able to understand that they have a sense of movement of where their body is in space, of being part of their body. And that's incredibly important to people who have lost a hand and are using uh, artificial prosthesis because that sense is totally missing. There's no sense of touch, but there's also no sense of movement. So it just doesn't feel like themselves. Yeah. And that makes it extraordinarily difficult and cognitively demanding in order to actually move the limb because you have to watch it the entire time, right? Mm, you don't yeah. know where it is. You have to be constantly thinking about it. And when you're thinking about moving your arm or how hard am I holding onto a cup so I don't crush it or so that I don't drop it, you're not really interacting with the world the way that you would otherwise be able to be because you're concentrating on just using this tool. That's true. We don't want it to feel like a tool. We want it to feel like their body. Oh, and that's what creates that freedom that we were reading about in these articles. Let's uh, let's take a break. We're talking with Dr. Gregory Clark, professor at the University of Utah. Can you believe it? Changing lives by by electrodes that can connect to nerves, bringing back touch so that we can recognize our movements where our body is in space. Powerful, folks. Changing the lives of uh, amputees. And, I mean, really the beginning of, I'm sure, an, an incredible amount of different um, opportunities and uses with this technology. We'll take a break. More with Dr. Gregory Clark right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
If you've ever seen the movie, maybe uh, RoboCop or Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., is that what it's called? You've seen that, uh, you know, all of a sudden they can take somebody who's injured, who's hurt, who's maybe had been had an amputation, and they can rebuild them. Today we're talking to a researcher that actually is is doing this now. Not quite that far. I mean, they're not there yet, but they basically are they're changing people's lives. The, I think the greatest thing about this is if you are an amputee and you suffer from, um, you know, the phantom pains and just the, the lack of and the frustration that you've lost part of you. Um, this is something that I think that can that can change lives, not, not just the RoboCop side of this or the bionic man side of this, but just the human side. And you've heard Dr. Gregory Clark, our guest, talk about that already. He's a professor at the University of Utah. He's the leader of the research team that's called the Utah Slanted Electrode Array. And um, he has his Ph.D. from the University of California, Irvine, and uh, is is really, I, I think, on the cutting edge here. Dr. Clark, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. I mean, really, this is – what are the limits of this? I mean, I know you're in the early stages, really, but you've got another $1.4 million to, inv- to to research. What? Where does this end, I guess? The end point will be some four years from now when users are able to take an advanced prosthetic hand and wrist and forearm home with them and use it in their daily activities. Mm. We hope that that capability will be a fundamental revolutionary advance compared with what users have now. The astonishing thing is, despite all our technical advances, in actual day-to-day use, people are using prosthetic limbs that are rather Civil War technology, and that's not just a metaphor. Sometimes they'll use a hook or a pair of hooks that might open and close, and that's about it. It's quite simply too demanding to control advanced prosthetic hand if you don't have the control signals for it and a hook doesn't have any sense of touch or any sense of movement so it's very practical in a certain way to hold a pot steady while you stir it with your other hand but it's really not their hand and they feel that in a very real way every day of their lives it's quite a poignant loss to lose your hand one uh, volunteer with whom i had the pleasure of interacting described it almost losing a family member, Mm. except that you're reminded of it every day of your life. And to begin to restore some of that sense of body self back to your individuals who have lost so much and given so much to our country in the case of our military is a wonderful possibility indeed. Well, that's got to be so powerful when you and you you've seen the videos on television and um, on YouTube with the cochlear kind of implant where you this child hasn't hasn't heard or been able to hear before and they turn on the implant and all of a sudden this child is hearing his mother for the first time i mean the same impact of having your sense of self and knowing your and being able to move your hand and use your hand without having to consciously focus on it all the time that has got to be so liberating and how cool for you to be able to look into the eyes of you know a veteran for example and see that. That's just, that's what a great job. I feel honored to have shared in that experience with these individuals. And if I may take it a step further, yeah. in some ways it's even more profound than a cochlear prosthesis given to a child who's never heard for the first time. Because in these cases, 
we have people that used to have a hand. Yeah. So it's not only a new experience, it's a returned experience, a restoration after a very deep and profound loss. And I'll tell you, these are some tough people. Uh, oh. They went through some challenging times after they've lost their hand. It's often very emotionally challenging. Uh, perhaps their job, they can no longer perform. They may not be the breadwinner that they once were. Um, they can't interact with the world the way they used to, and they're confronted with that every day. So let me tell you the story of one individual. Yeah. He had his hand crushed, and the crush injury spared his thumb. And he had his first surgery that uh, restored um, his, his health back, um, but his thumb was there, and it wasn't working. He went through 11 more surgeries oh. to try to get his thumb to work, and none of them was successful. And in the end... He had to say goodbye to his thumb and have them cut that off as well. Oh, man. So he came into the lab, and, and literally 21 years to the day, uh, he was attached uh, to the device and was able to begin to move the prosthetic hand on the computer screen, not a real one, and see it move and see it come alive again. And we were able to talk back to the arm nerves, and we were able to talk to the nerves that used to innervate the thumb. And we activated those. He could feel his thumb again. And this is one tough individual, but for him to see his thumb come alive again and for him to feel his thumb back again was truly a profound experience for him. And to be able to share a little bit in that vicariously was a tremendous motivator. Do do you sense that, um, I I just imagine over time, that you you this would become perfected, maybe it moves from 100 electrodes, can you eventually get it to 1,000? or whatever the number is, so that you can have more information? That's certainly a possibility. Uh, Going with uh, a couple of hundred right now really should uh, provide extraordinary improvements over Mm. what's presently available. We're not really trying to create Steve Austin. We're not trying to create a super being. We're simply trying to get people back towards where they have been before. And right now, using the cochlear prosthesis, the... the, um, auditory prosthesis uh, that we talked about, people can have speech, right? That fundamentally changes the way they interact with other individuals, not just listening to music, but being able to interact with people in a deep way. That said, as wonderful as it is, um, the sense of sound isn't isn't perfect. So remember, when you're starting out with nothing, every little bit helps. You bet. You have to move from nothing to hundreds of different points so that they can feel their fingertips, that they can feel the back of their hand, that they can feel their hand move through space. This will be truly revolutionary, and that goal in and of itself is more than worthy. Well, and how powerful it is. You're you're describing, it's so interesting because we don't always think of the human experience as as focused as just the use of a hand. But it really is. That's, that is a major part of an, our experience, as is the sound and hearing and seeing and all of these functions um do you do you, i guess eventually do we sense that they'll be able to get i mean if it's communicating if their brain is functioning with the device i would assume eventually they'd be able to get back to fairly normal functioning and and even so if i if i was a painter and i had incredible skill and touch doing something artistic do you sense that there'll be a day where that will be able to come back as well. I do. Again, the hand is a very complicated device. It has maybe 22 different types of movement. 
what we've shown and others have shown as well is that even if you train the algorithms, the computer programs, on any one individual movement, then the user is able to put those back together again. Mm -hmm. What's key about this is that the brain has always been working, is still working. We don't have to figure out, we don't have to replace the brain. Yeah. We just have to connect the signals coming down from the brain and to the prosthetic hand and interpret them. And one of the lovely advantages of the peripheral nervous system, without going into technical detail, is that, that it's a very simple code. So let me describe that just a little bit for your listeners. Okay. This is a nerve bundle containing lots of biological wires, if you'll allow me the metaphor. And coming down each wire is a pulse code, kind of a digital all-or-none code. And every pulse that comes down a fiber that would have been connected to a muscle means one twitch in the muscle. So uh. if that wire is kind of quiet, then we know that muscle should be quiet. And then the, coming down that wire, biological wire, is this train of pulses that goes and we know what muscle that wire would have been connected to if the hand muscle was still there. We can interpret that as, oh, that muscle should move. So the idea is that once we understand what the relationship is between that burst of pulses and the user's intended movement, we just have to make that prosthetic hand do what the biological hand would have done anyway. And the beauty of this is the user doesn't have to learn how to do anything differently uh, in, the, in the limit, right? They're right. just moving their hand the way they've always used it. We're just plugging into the signals they've always used, that they've always generated for decades, and now their hand can move again. Let me contrast that with what needs to be done today, for example, if you have a fairly advanced prosthetic hand, and you have to control it with, say, your biceps. But you can't control 22 different things with one muscle, so you might have to go through a clutch mechanism where you turn it from muscle one to muscle two and then move muscle two. Oh, wow. You get that to the right place, and then you got to clutch it to muscle three and close your hand, and, oh, it's not yeah. right in the right place. It's extraordinarily complicated. So what actually happens is people tend not to use those devices because they're sophisticated but not functional. They're just too much trouble. So if we can plug into either the residual arm muscles that – tend to still be there because they're in the forearm and capture the electrical signals from the remaining muscles or plug directly into the nerves, then the user doesn't have to think about anything new. They'll still have that same skill set in their brain. They'll capture the signals coming down their nerves or going to their muscles and use those to drive the prosthetic hand just by mm. the person thinking about it. So powerful. I mean, really, and that's that and naturally, just doing it naturally. I mean, it's almost like as science is, uh, I guess, evolving, we, we're we're now allowing it to be more natural. Uh, it's, now it's not a wooden peg and a hook. It's it's actually letting your brain do the work for you. We, we so appreciate you, Dr. Gregory Clark, and continued success in your work. Man, I so look forward to the day that they get that hand built and plug it into your system and you finally get a shake one of your client's hands. How cool is that going to be? Uh, powerful stuff. Dr. Gregory Clark from the University of Utah and the Utah Slanted Electrode Array. Not necessarily building a RoboCop, just strengthening humans. Pretty powerful. Again, the goal of the show, show you the human side. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Cody Reader, who, my friends, is on a mission to Mars. He's in the top 100 candidates, I guess. To, uh, to take a trip to Mars. We'll be seeing what is going on in his head right here on the Matt Townsend Show. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, we we have Cody Reader is uh, a Utah who is one of the 100, I guess, finalists for the Mars mission. There is a, an organization called Mars One. It's a nonprofit organization that plans to send four people on a one-way trip to Mars to establish permanent a permanent human settlement. Their plan is to depart every two years with uh, um, the first mission to take off in 2024. Believe it or not, 202,000 initial applicants signed up for this opportunity. They've narrowed it down to the top 100. Cody Reader um, is from Utah, and we're trying to get him on Skype right now. Believe it or not, we can't even communicate with somebody across the state. But uh, this is, I think, an important lesson for Cody, because if he gets all the way to Mars, it might be even harder to Skype. Uh, here's the deal, though. Um, Cody lit, grew up basically in the West Desert here in Utah, which looks a little bit like Mars. It's a desert, and he's always loved kind of big sky. He'd look up and and see, um, you know, the Milky Way up in the sky. Everybody that would come and visit him would be like, "Whoa, that's so amazing!" He's always loved space. He's a he's he's a geology major at the U- Utah State University. He's constantly doing experiments, and he can hardly wait to leave. He wants to be picked. He feels like he's the perfect candidate. Now, here's the dilemma. I'm not sure, and you've been doing a little research on this, apparently, Terry. I'm not sure that they all – they're never coming back, apparently. Yeah, it's a one-way trip. I mean, but – so what makes you – what makes somebody, 202,000 people, say, well, I want to do that? I've, I've read quotes from people, some saying they're tired of the earth. <laughs> they're just ready to move on already. <laughs> I'm t- How can you be tired of I the earth? Know. You don't even know what the, uh, you don't even know what Mars is like. I don't know. There's, there's been movies. They've shown <laughs> us, right? Yeah, that's true. A lot of red rock, and they have, um, what, there's a, uh, uh, a test going on in southern Utah, Driving around in, in some of the desolate areas yeah. with some some Mars yeah. possibility of Mars technology being used to uh, figure out how how sure. they can live in, in a harsh environment. Well, okay, that kind of thing. So we've got the rover figured out. Yeah, but and been, even if you lived in a pod for a year, you know. But you, well, it's interesting. This is different. They want to use existing technologies. Yeah. To get to Mars, right? So, so it'll take seven months to get there, right? <laughs> And then uh, the journey itself, seven months, MIT, recent MIT study found that the first explorers succeeded if they succeed in landing. That's the one thing. You have to land. Oh, there's the big if. I mean, that's pretty heavy. And if they do current technology, they would likely survive for 68 days because you have to take everything with you. Yeah. And so they start looking at what's the possibilities? How could you, uh, you know, oxygen, all that kind of so stuff. How much not, could you pack with you? And there's there's a limited amount. There's not a there's not a Coca Cola bottling plant up there. No, there's no there's not there's no Walmart. No. So they have 68 days, is what MIT is saying, yeah. to figure out how they're going to survive. Now they've probably thought that through. I hope so. They probably have a two year supply for the four people. But you got to remember, these are four people that you just went on a trip for 700 days with. Yes. So by about, I'm going to bet day 100, they're all like, quit touching me. You're in my space. Yeah. It's, Move it's, over. It's reality TV, which is what they hope to turn this into, to, to fund further programs. That's it. They need, they need a camera crew. So really, of the four, 
Two of them need to be camera people. Apparently. They have to record. Well, I mean, wow. we're all camera people. We all have phones now, so. Sad, but true. little training. They, they could get a, a basic understanding, I guess. But it's no, interesting. It's, it's, they, they're going to use current technology. They're not trying to like innovate yet. No, they just have to go figure out they how probably to survive. Hope, they probably hope that there's going to be some advances in the next that's, 10 years. Well, that's actually why he thinks he's, he's a really good option. Because, um, again, we're talking about a Utah that's made the top 100. Cody Reader, he basically, you know, he's creative. He, he already has 100 experiments on YouTube. You can go watch his video um, to, to audition. Basically, he was upside down, hanging upside down the entire interview. Look, I can live this way. It's fine. So he's creative. Plus, he knows how to farm and he knows how to make things and fix things. Well, we wish him the best of luck. 68 and, uh, days. 68 days. Um, and Skype. we got to figure out Skype. That's what we got to do. We're going to take a break. Uh, hour number one. It's in the books, man. There you go. When we come back, hour number two, we've got uh, an excellent guest that's going to be talking about spanking. Are we supposed to be spanking anymore? We'll give you the insight on that. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend. Hour number two. It's six after the hour. Welcome to the program. Have we got a show for you? Last hour, we talked about basically bionics. This hour, we're going to talk about spanking. Is there, you know, with Adrian Peterson in the news, pulling out the switch, spanking his child, you know, got him in a lot of trouble. He called it a whooping. He, he called it a whooping. Yeah. You might call it a lashing or a whipping. He called it a whooping. But the reality is um, the research isn't adding up, folks. Tons of research now showing not necessarily the best way to raise your children. It corrected my behavior. Yeah. I did what my dad said afterwards. So Yeah. I but, don't know. But a lot of us are still questioning that. Right. I know that there's... How you how the, you turned out? There's that, and there's developmental questions, and yeah. is that the best way to to bring up a, a child? So yeah, Dr. a lot of research on this. Dr. Liz Gershoff will be joining us. She's been doing all the research on that. So hang on for that. But before we go there, let's get to the headlines. Terry, what are we? What's in the news for us? Texas surgeons separated conjoined twins. Oh, that's cool. Twelve surgeons, twenty six hours. They surgically separated two conjoined ten month old twins in Texas. Oh wow! The two girls they were uh, conjoined from their rib cages down to their pelvises. Some of their internal organs, including their liver and lungs, were also conjoined. Huh. Luckily, the girls each had separate beating hearts, so there was no problem there. But uh, yeah, the doctors feel like they they estimate they have a good chance of surviving the complicated surgery. That's great. Yeah. So they're they're doing okay. I bet I guess one of them might have. They each have a lung or something. They just shared lungs. They yeah. That, that's the decision you have to make. That's why it takes twelve surgeons because they have to. Okay, now what do we do here? Yeah. And how do we? Can you imagine? You don't even know till you're you're in there. That's kind of like the auto mechanic shop where they're like, I can't tell you. Yeah, you can do your X-rays and ultrasounds and all that to try to figure out a yeah. roadmap. But once you're in there, then you have to try oh, to yeah. Mm. 
That's no... Well, we wish them the best of luck. That's cool. Uh, let's see. Peanut allergies? Nope. Don't have any. You don't have any? It says uh, peanuts could cuss, cut the risk of allergies for babies. A study of the New England Journal of Medicine reports that peanut products actually reduce the risk of allergies for babies. So if the mother eats peanut products, it reduces the baby's allergies, or do you feed your baby peanut products? Research from a team from King's College in London conducted trials on 628 babies found that their risk of developing allergies fell by more than 80%. Still, the researchers warned parents not to experiment on their own kids yeah, please. without a doctor's help. Not Don't give children under five whole peanuts. Since there's Who a wants risk a of peanut choking. butter cup? But they probably like maybe infused formula with, yeah. with peanuts and then uh, it helped build up some resistance to developing allergies down the road. It seems like a lot could go wrong with that. I don't know if your kid's allergic to peanuts how that works, but... Yeah. That's a that that's always a bad surprise when you figure that out. But I guess if there's no aller, you know allergic to peanuts, then you can develop this uh, hmm. resistance. I guess that's I good know. to know. It's just, just interesting. And another one, a new study suggests that dishwashers may increase a child's risk of developing allergies. Like if you what wash your dishes with a dishwasher? Really? That's because what like, we don't have as many germs on our plates. One thousand Swedish children, ages seven to eight, the study concluded that those. Raised in homes where dishes were washed by hand were significantly less likely to develop uh, eczema. So skin. Oh, really? Yeah, skin disorders. Skin issues there. Hand washing dishes also was connected to a lower likelihood of developing allergy, asthma, or hay fever. It's palm olive. Possibly. It, <laughs> that's interesting. Wow. You would think that you'd have fewer allergies if you were dishwashing. It's kind of the selling point of the dishwasher is uh-huh. that it's it's cleaner, it makes you know, it kills more of the bacteria than just hand washing. Not the case. And they're saying it might not. It might be a petri dish. Let me just give you the rule that's always been a big one in our family. You know the five second rule? Yes. We we're up to the we're about a minute. <laughs> we have a one minute rule. No one stepped on it, it's fine. Honestly, I'd have your kid eat dirt. Because if your kid oh, eats yeah. dirt they're going to have a higher immunity. So it's almost as if you, you let it stay on the ground, like, ah, it's marinating. I don't even just let it. I kick it across the floor, then I pick it up. <laughs> there, there is some argument about how much we try to keep our kids clean and oh, aseptic-type yeah. hand-washing-type wa- thing, where, to the point where we're making it so that we're not resistant to anything. I know. And now we have these super viruses, these super bugs, because everyone's been... Uh, taking the antibiotics, that's not working so anymore. So if you let your kid sort of play in the dirt, it might actually help him is no, seriously. some thought. I, and there's something about – I was – let me think about this. My wife was all, never, always sick and today is never sick. As a child, she had every cold. I was never sick, but now I'm always sick. I think I was protected. My wife must not have been. But my wife never gets sick, ever, ever. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So the dirt rule, 10 seconds minimum. That's your recommendation? Yeah. And remember, I don't want to brag, but I am a doctor. I'm kind of a big deal. You play one on the radio. And I play one on the radio. I don't know much about eczema, but I do know that I shouldn't do dishes. That's why I had children. The Pope is looking to welcome a new demographic to the Catholic Church. Really? Members of the Italian Mafia. Wow. During an address at the Vatican, Pope Francis told mafioso members that the church will welcome you if your willingness to serve good is as clear and 
public as your choice to serve evil was. So, like, did did how do you like send out an invitation, dear mafiosos? He has an and they offer. all showed up, they and they refuse. all are sitting in the room, and he's welcoming you back. Well, I think that's great. As it says here, in everybody other words, deserves forgiveness. Leave the gun, take the rosary. Great point. It's a great point. So, yeah, mob members, if you want. But, I mean, that that, that invitation's probably been there for It's interesting because it's a, a target. I mean, a lot of churches are are trying to target the youth, the millennials, because they're, they're t- they tend to be leaving the church. As the Catholic Church is. But the interesting thing is very few are actually going after the mafia or the mob, you know, demographic. They have a, a sizable demographic in Italy. We had a guest on families. the show that was a gang member, the, the LDS Church. Bubba. Bubba. Bubba Palmore. He's so maybe the Mormons are going after the gangers, gangbangers, or the Catholic Church going after the mafia. But you know what? Honestly, in the end, we are changing the world, all of us. Winston Churchill. How much do you know about him? Not a lot. Yeah. Big head, I heard. He had right. a big head. Right. Lots of hats. Lots of hats. I just Great see leader. Him. World War II photos is kind yeah. of how I've seen him. 87 years old. He fractured his hip, stayed at a hospital in London. In during that process, left behind a vial of his own blood that will now be auctioned off. Wow! Do you want a vial of Winston Churchill's blood? One know. day that man will be cloned. Yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> That's scary. A nurse collected the sample and kept it. She oh. got permission, so it wasn't like it was okay. Mr. Under Churchill, the... can I keep your blood? <laughs> sure, Stacy. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Do what so you got to do. She died. And so this tube of vial of blood is now going to be auctioned off by her family. I wonder how much blood's going for now. There are speculation between about about $430. $430? Yeah. I don't know if that's the starting point, but that's where they estimate the amount of money. Do you know what? There. If you go give platelets, is that what it's called, where you go give blood and you can make, you can make, you can make better money than that? Yes. I'm just, I mean, if anybody's out there looking for money... But this is historic blood. Okay. Yeah. There's a story involved. There's yeah, documentation. That's cool. I mean, that's okay. Wait, so it's Winston Churchill's blood, and it's going to be sold for less than five hundred dollars? That's what they were saying. Wow. Yeah. That you ought to go for that. I'm going to go for that. That's that a would, collector's item. James, that would be a great wedding gift. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. I, I I've started off really well with the knives, and I can is, give her blood. Here's the guy's blood. Here. Well. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even know there was a market for that. That's Apparently. cool. I mean, but I guess anything Winston. It's powerful. Well, that's cool. Well, we're not going to spare any blood. We're, I mean, we're going to keep all of our blood. we got a great guest. I have been so excited about this next topic. Um, did you know the history of spanking? You would think it started with Adam and Eve. <laughs> it's a generational thing. Some generations. Did you know there's certain parts of the United States that spank a lot more than others? Did you know there's certain races that spank more than others? And did you know in the end, the research is showing children who are spanked more are much more likely to spank their own kids. We're going to be talking to a prominent researcher in the field of spanking. Uh, she, Dr. Liz Gershoff, is going to teach us what the research is showing and give us some ideas for what we could do instead of spanking. We'll be right back right here on The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, have we got a subject for you right now. Spanking, you all remember the uh, the big, just crazy moment that was experienced with Adrian Peterson. Remember? Adrian Peterson takes his child out with a switch, spanks his child, whips his child with this switch, just disciplining his children. Basically, he claimed the way he was disciplined. And then he was charged with child abuse, and it has led to a robust debate around the country whether spanking is healthy or not, corporal punishment, is it, is it effective, is it justified? And this is a topic that gets you, gets you just going, I know. So we are going to open up our phone lines, and if you uh, have questions or comments for our, our next guest, Dr. Liz Gershoff is going to be joining us, 1-855-CHAT-BYU, 1-855-CHAT-BYU. Or again, um, please feel free to tweet us at BYU Radio, dot, oh, BYU, at BYU Radio, sorry. And we'd love your calls as well, one eight five five chat byu But before we get there, let's get, uh, get a little background here on Dr. Liz Gershoff. She was on CNN.com. They did a big story highlighting, you know, the, the results of spanking and this study that Dr. Gershoff did. Um, Dr. Gershoff is from the University of Texas and is uh, at Austin and is a developmental psychologist who studies parenting and child discipline as it affects development. She's also a professor of human development and family sciences at the University of Texas, Austin. Dr. Gershoff, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. We, I, I love your article because I, I was spanked and I did spank. And um, I had this really weird moment where I realized the only time I spanked my children, I was angry. Hmm, that's a good observation. <laughs> and I thought, so, hmm, I'm not doing this because it's healthy per se. I'm doing it because I'm hijacked chemically. I'm emotionally mm-hmm. taken over. So you, you're, not just, you don't, you're not just opinionated on this. You've researched it. Talk about your research and some of your findings. So, yeah, I've looked at all of the research that's been done on spanking, which turns out to be dozens and dozens of studies. And I've done a few things. One is um, I've done something called a meta-analysis, which means I've taken all the studies that are done and kind of combined them together, taking into account how many kids are in the studies and things like that. And when you do that, you see that the vast majority of studies find spanking is linked with negative outcomes for kids. And this is true from compliance. So reduced compliance, increased aggression, increased mental health problems, decreased cognitive ability. Uh, so we see a whole range of negative hmm. outcomes. There's really no study that can show spanking is linked with better outcomes for kids. So there's, so no, study, consistent. there's no study that can show it's linked to better outcomes, but there's numerous studies that show some negative effect, whether it's compliance or outcome or just mental health, uh, you know. And, and also exactly. aggressive behavior. Yes, that's the big one, you know, because hitting is a form of aggression. And so by hitting our kids, we're teaching them you can solve problems by using aggression. That's not our intention when we're hitting them, but that no. is a lesson they learn. They learn from what we do, not from what we say. Uh, I mean, it's, it's frustrating. <laughs> it, it, it's so frustrating because we, a lot of us argue pro spanking uh, on a variety of fronts. But but if the research isn't jiving with it, then why are we spanking? That's a good question. I think it's part because parents don't know what to do instead, yeah. and they're afraid of not using any discipline, which is, of course, 
probably worse. I right. Mean, you know, those of us who have found spanking to be harmful, we don't want people not to discipline. That's not the solution. It's just that we need, we can, just like with when you have a problem with another adult, you don't hit them. You work it out. You find ways to resolve your problems. And we need to be doing that with our kids as well. We shouldn't just be resorting to hitting to teach them things. We can use our words. Um, and kids respond really well to positive attention. They respond well to routines. And, you know, there's lots of things that kids thrive on that we could be doing instead of hitting them. Um, and so I think parents are doing it because they don't know what else to do. You know, I often hear, I was spanked and I turned out okay. Yeah, yeah. what's your answer often... to that? <laughs> well, I have a couple of answers. Twitch, I think twitch. That... They're always twitching yeah. when they say that. <laughs> yeah, um, I think one thing is that our parents, I would I would guess our parents did all the other things we know are good. So they reasoned with us. They gave us natural consequences. They talked about the effects of our behavior on other people, which is pretty important. And they told us what they expected us to do instead. Those are all really important messages that you know, teach us how to behave appropriately in the future. Those are things that don't stick with us. We don't remember all the times our parents sat down and talked to us. Right. But we do remember the hittings, which is really interesting. I mean, it kind of suggests it's a little traumatic. People people tell me all the time, oh, I was hit with my par- by my parents, and I remember, and it kind of sears in the brain. Whereas all those boring talks our parents had with us, you know, we don't remember all those. Right. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, we've learned a lot about what's good for kids in the last several decades. And so... You know, when I was a kid, child safety in cars was not a concern. We didn't have seatbelts. <laughs> yep. We didn't have car seats. In fact, it was fun. So we've learned a lot. Yeah, you know, I remember my brother sliding and around. I would bounce around. Yeah. yeah, we'd bounce around the back of the station wagon. It was fun. <laughs> we were so negligent. That's there. right. Yeah. You know, but and luckily, we didn't get in a car accident. You know, so did I do better in life because my parents didn't use seatbelts? No. Was I lucky? Yes. Yeah. We know a lot better now than than that. So we put kid, you know, nobody would put their kid in a car without a seatbelt anymore, or a car seat. And in fact, it's illegal. That's a great. So that's but that's the, that's like a perfect argument because someone could say, "I survived. Look how I turned out." Well, yeah, exactly. yeah but you you also would have survived in a seatbelt. Right, you would have been had a better chance if something bad had happened. Right, so, you know, I think it's better. I think we can say we've learned over time and that those of us who, who didn't have these negative outcomes, lucky for us. Yeah. But not everybody was so lucky. Well, and I guess that is the key here, right, to our learning. Um, as as we're learning and we can now do research to find out what is a great discipline method and what isn't, we, we can use our learning and, and become better parents. I mean, we used to burn people at the stake. Well, and I guess today there still are people that do that. But in the end, we don't keep that as a method of discipline. We're, we're, we're getting better as human beings. I like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it used to be okay for um, men to hit their wives. You know, right. that was totally acceptable until like the 60s and 70s even, not that long ago. And so that totally shifted. That became, and part of the women's movement, that became like, it's not okay to hit another adult. We need to see that kind of same shift for kids. You know, why is it okay for us to hit the smallest and most vulnerable people in our society? I think we need to really rethink that. But what what they would probably say, and help me with this one, it was because I love them, <laughs> right? I hit them because I love them, and I, I. What it seems like the fear is is we want our fear is we want them to turn out better than we are. So, but then we don't know what to do. I guess is what you're saying, and then we end up hitting instead of the other options. Right, and that's you know, and one of the most tragic consequences of physical punishment is um, not not all the time, but it happens is physical abuse. Yeah. And one of the most tragic things is about 
three-quarters of cases of physical abuse start out as discipline. And so the parent didn't intend to hurt the kid and injure the kid. They just wanted to discipline them. And so the tragedy is they really severely injured their kid when they didn't mean to. Mm. And that that to me is so sad and, yeah. and suggests that we just really need to educate people about other ways to discipline and to just try to leave the hitting out of parenting altogether. We're talking with Dr. Liz Gershoff. She's a developmental psychologist who studies uh, parenting and child discipline. She's from the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, again, a great resource. Anybody that studies um to this level, when you go through all of the studies and find out that really there's 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 pretty much no positive uh, validation of of hit of spanking our children, um, there's a lot to learn here. Talk about till we take our next break. Will you just talk about kind of the history of this? I assume this has been just something that's always been around. I think it probably has. I think as long as there have been human beings, there's probably been hitting, um, and so parents have been using hitting as a way to control behavior for a long time. Um, you know, and it's, it, we also have had it in lots of institutions. We've had it in the military. We've had it in prison system. We've had it in schools. And it's slowly been taken out of in some institutions. So we don't use it in prisons anymore. We don't use it in the military anymore. But one place we still do use it is schools. Ah. And so it's legal in 19 states in the United States for teachers or principals to paddle kids yeah. in school. I had that growing up. The, the, Did you really? Yeah, the uh, what do they call it? The merit stick. Is that what it's called? Uh, the meter stick. Wow. And, um, you know, if you were naughty, you'd get sent to the principal's office and he'd give you the meter stick and a good lesson, good talking to. Yeah, yeah. And that is still happening in lots of states. In 19 um, states, I, you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, around 200,000 kids or more get paddled each year. Corporal uh, punishment. data. Um, Talk about, I mean, I guess when you think about it, when, when we use the word spanking, is there a definition that is kind of accepted? Yeah, normally people say uh, hitting a child on the behind with an open palm. Um, and there's, you know, debate about how many times, but yeah. usually just a few times. But no, usually not an object, but there's different definitions of, there's many people in the United States who use objects and still call it spanking. Sure. I mean, there's other words, right? Walloping, lashing, whipping, mm-hmm. thrashing tanning one side. Oh. Yes. Yes, there's lots of euphemisms for it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Interestingly, we never call it hitting. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. We, yeah. Why don't we just use the word? That, w- that would be helpful, I think, in getting people to, ch- to really think about it. If they called it hitting, they might think twice. Yeah, especially when we're then hitting our child, telling them to not hit their brother. Exactly. Interesting. We're talking again with Dr. Uh, Dr. Gershoff, Dr. Liz Gershoff, who um, is a, a great researcher and and has really spent a lot of time focusing on spanking children, corporal punishment. Um, when we come back, we first of all love your calls. If anybody has questions for Dr. Gershoff, give us a call. One eight five five Chat BYU. One eight five five Chat BYU. If you have a different take, a different uh, thought about this, we want to hear from you. One eight five five Chat BYU. Dr. Liz, when we come back, Dr. Liz Gershoff is going to also be teaching us a little bit about the cultures and the generations that are more prone to spanking, and even. Just our background might be impacting some of the reasons why we spank. We'll be getting into it when we come back. More right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Dr. Liz Gershoff. She uh, has been studying spanking. And, uh, you know, with Adrian Peterson in the news and just all of the other stories about abuse, child abuse, and, and just there are kids, right? And so we want the best for them. We need some method to discipline them. And it seems like one of the supposed age-old ways of doing that is spanking. And um, our, our researcher on the phone, Dr. Liz Gershoff, is telling us it doesn't serve your purpose. In almost every category, spanking your children, in fact, in every category, probably every spanking your children, is going to decrease outcomes, reduce compliance, increase aggression and aggressive behavior. There really isn't a study that she could find in all of her research that would validate that, that spanking is productive, is positive. So I guess what that means is we either need to give up the arguments or and change or just recognize that what we're choosing to do is hit our children. Huh. Those are big words, right? Give us a call, 1-855-CHAT-BYU, 1-855-CHAT-BYU. If you have a question for Dr. Liz Gershoff about spanking, we'd love to talk to you about that. If you have a different opinion, if you if you have a, a healthy reason why we spank, we'd love to hear from you as well, 1-855-CHAT-BYU. Want to hear your ideas on the show. Dr. Liz Gersh- Gershoff, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Talk about um, some of the other things you found culturally, generationally, regionally. What, what are some of the trends? Are there certain parts of the United States that are more prone to spanking? Are there certain you know, age groups that are more prone to do it? Well, we know that um, through through the years, support for spanking has declined a little bit, and so older generations are tend to be more supportive of spanking generally. Um, although, actually, very young parents tend to be the ones that hit the most, which is probably just a factor of them being kind of overwhelmed. Yeah, they have the children. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But we've seen differences on a couple aspects of culture. We know that uh, parents who have very uh, conservative religious Christian beliefs tend to spank more and to spank more readily and to, to you know, really tie their uh, use of it to the Bible hmm. um, and, and interpreting passages in the Bible very literally about, you know, sparing the rod, spoil the child kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't seem like the kids are doing any better because their parents are doing that. Um, and again, it's probably because parents are, those parents are also teaching kids morals and ethics from the Bible, hopefully. Yeah. Um, at the yeah. same time. So that's what's teaching the kids the lessons. So so I guess um, that would mean then um, more religious communities are probably more prone to spanking. I, I think I think it was the, the South was as a group, as an aggregate in the United States, the South were more likely to spank. Yes, there's definitely going to be higher rates in the South. Um, and, and you attribute that mainly to more, you know, kind of religious views? Yeah, I think we can tie that to, um, you know, the Bible Belt runs through the South, and, you know, very literal interpretation of the Bible uh, goes along with that. You know, I mean, there's also just people have documented for decades now there's a kind of a pattern of violence in the South, that that violence is more often used to solve interpersonal problems in the South than in other places. Mm. 
you know, there's debate about why that is. Is it because of slavery? Is it because of some other thing? Is it because of poverty? I don't think we really know. We just know that violence is, is just more common interpersonally uh, in the South. Um, and most of the, st- the states that still allow corporal punishment in schools are also in the South. Hmm. So it's just, there's just a more, it's the, the idea that you can use violence to discipline kids is more accepted in the South. Well, it's so interesting because um, um, the irony of the Bible and the, and the validation for spanking, I mean, it's, um, I guess that's what happens with this is we don't, I, I guess, and that's what I learned with, even with myself, I, I would never spank I used to think I would spank because I loved my kids, but every time I would spank them, I wasn't in a loving moment. I was in an angry, mm-hmm. fearful, reactive space. And then I guess if I don't look mm-hmm. at it, then I don't learn. I, I just justify it, and I just keep yeah, in the well, pattern. I think it's so interesting. I mean, I'm not a religious scholar, but I think that what's interesting when people use the Bible to justify hitting, it's obviously a very Old Testament kind of interpretation. I mean, right. New Testament— you know, you know, there's no mention of Jesus yeah. ever hitting children. Well, in That's fact, not... <laughs> I just taught it in That's church. The last thing you we're, can imagine. Right, we're supposed to turn the cheek, right? And so when we're offended, right. we're supposed to turn the cheek. Right. And yet, you know, and Jesus was always looking out for children, you yeah. know, and small animals and things. So it's not that he was not promoting that. So mm-hmm. it, it's a very selective interpretation of the Bible, I think. Anyway, yeah. um, another cultural kind of difference we see is uh, between race and ethnicity group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this one gets a lot of attention, particularly because of the Adrian Peterson case, um, that African-Americans tend to support spanking more. They tend to use it more um, and talk about it as being a part of their culture. And so my colleagues and I look to see whether spanking is better for kids in that culture, because there's an argument that if kids grow up in a culture where it's normative, where it happens all the time, yeah. it, maybe it's better for them, because that's what they expect. Oh, interesting. And so we looked and we, there actually is no difference between race groups. We found that the more kids were spanked, the more aggressive they were in white families, black families, Latino families, and Asian American families. There's no difference. It's the universal, isn't it? There you go. It is. A very sad universal. Yeah. So just the fact that one group spanks more doesn't make it any better for it, their kids. But it was really interesting, um, some of the, the theories as to why the African American culture might spank more. Um, you, talk about the kind of the beloved syndrome from that movie Beloved. Do you remember that? Uh, that was in that article. Um, but it was basically that um, in the movie Beloved what, that Oprah Winfrey did, she mm-hmm. she ended up killing her own children because she saw the slave master coming, and instead of letting him get to them, she wanted to inflict the pain. But that's a myth. I mean, you're not. So so one of the I guess the ideas somebody is purporting is that African-American parents want their children to feel the, the, I guess, the pain before they get to the community where they're given the pain. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the argument that, you know, to be African-American in this country, and I'm not African-American, right. so I can only kind of speak generally about it, but it's still very difficult, and life is hard. And, and so I think parents are trying in some ways to, to kind of not not inoculate their kids, but prepare them yeah. for what the world is going to be like. And so one of the ways I, I think they think they can do that is by showing, you know, the world is harsh and the world is going to treat you harshly when you get out there. Hmm. And so I'm going to try to prepare you for that. You know, unfortunately, spanking is not the way to do that. I mean, the way to keep kids safe is to monitor them and know where they are and know their friends and, you know, text them and call them and have you know, curfews and things like that. I mean, that's how you keep kids safe. Mm-hmm. You know, know all their friends. 
it, hitting them is actually going to have the opposite effect because the kids are going to not come home. They don't want to be where they're going to be hit. They'll stay away. They'll stay away. And so that's, again, a kind of a tragedy of it. Parents think they're protecting their kids. They, they think they're doing the right thing. But, in fact, they may be driving their kids away, which is going to make it harder for them to discipline them and teach them the good messages. Is, is um, I mean, it's so hard. I, I keep trying to play devil's advocate with you, but it's so <laughs> hard to come up with one. Like, just a little spanking. It's not a big <laughs> deal. But in, right. in the end, it's still more of the same, isn't it? Even yeah, if it's I mean, just a little. Yeah, I mean, and people say that, and like, of course. If, so, if a kid is hit just a couple times in their life, probably it won't have any impact. But, you know, you can also argue that a couple of things could be very impactful sure. in a relationship where the kid doesn't expect that. If they have a very loving and trusting relationship with their parents, and all of a sudden their parent is hitting them, you know, that's going to really stick with you. You're going to remember, like, oh, my gosh, I can't, I can't always trust my parent to be keeping me safe because sometimes they actually hurt me. Yeah. Um, you know, that can be very confusing for kids. And so even a few times could do that. Um, but, you know, in general, a couple spankings is not going to lead to all these outcomes that we're talking about. That's, that's going to be happening more often. And when people hurt, like kind of hit their kids longer and harder. Well, I mean, and you see that kind of in the Adrian Peterson case. He, he truly believes his, that aggression that his family took on him, that he then mirrored with his child, is what made him a successful player and athlete. He, he attributes it to that strong kind of corporal type of punishment. And, and you know, and it's hard to argue with a, a one person's experience, you, yeah. know, you know. But I think for most of us, if we look back at what actually taught us stuff, it was when the parent, our parents sat down and explained things to us or they led by their example or, you know, taught us, you know, parables or whatever it was that kind of stuck with us in our brains. Like that's, that's the stuff that helps us be moral, ethical people it's, and, and, you know, good citizens. It's yeah. not being hit. You know, hitting gets kids' attention, that's for sure. Oh, that's, see, that's, why, that's another reason. I, my wife and I had a big debate about this. So why do you mm-hmm. want to spank, she said. And I basically my, – my only answer was – because it gets their attention. It's the only right. thing I could see that got their attention, and yet it, it's not a healthy way to get their attention. Right. I mean, we, don't, we try to get attention from other people. We don't do that. Right. You know? no. I mean, there's other ways. You know, we, we're the adults. Yeah. We should be in charge. We should be leading by example and keeping control of our own behavior. And so spanking is kind of a loss of, of control, I yeah. think. No, I think you're and right. As you kind of suspected, people do it when they're angry. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we have to remember we're the adults and we're, we we got to control ourselves first before we control our kids. And the underlying tension that's created is just fear. So then I guess we're creating motivation by fear. But mm-hmm. fear isn't a great lasting motivator to create a healthy relationship. No, or to, to or to promote behavior because as soon as the fear is gone, yeah. kids have no reason to behave appropriately. Yeah, so no, if yeah. You're, you know, you try to teach your kid to share toys with their siblings. As soon as you're not in the room, if you've hit them, they're just going to do whatever they want. They're not going to share because you haven't taught them why sharing is important. Or if you've used fear and intimidation to motivate your kids, as soon as your child, you know, is a 6'2 football player junior in high school, (laughs) you're no longer you no longer have a power base. Your power source is gone. You can't you can't intimidate. Well, then I'll just not pay for you. So then we use fiscal intimidation. In the right. end, there's something higher that I guess is just honor relationship. We need, we've got to we got to grow the relationship out of respect and honor. It doesn't mean I won't discipline you, and I will. Yet I'll still respect you and 
treat you as a child of God or as a human being. Exactly. I think that is what it's all about. It's about respect and trust. And kids pick up on that really early on. And they want to do things for adults that they love and trust. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kids are motivated to kind of give back. When, when somebody does something nice for them, they do things nice back, just like we do with our friends. That's if, right. if a friend does something nice to us, we do something nice back to them. And kids are kind of the same way. And so it's, I think it's just crucially important to build that relationship from right from the beginning. Yeah. That kind of sets the stage for good discipline. We're talking with Dr. Liz Gershoff um, from the University of Texas, Austin. And Liz, can you stick with us one more block? I'd love to come back and have you teach us what we should be doing then. So if we're not going to spank... Now that you've ruined that, um, will you please teach us what we could be doing? What are some other options? What are some other ideas that, uh, that might enhance that respect and trust between parent-child in the disciplining world? We'll take a break. More with Dr. Liz Gershoff when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today we're talking about spanking, and, uh, you know, I think everybody's had that moment where they either were spanked or they wanted to spank or they did spank. And I think in the end, it's just healthy to learn and to know what we should be doing. Dr. Liz Gershoff is joining us from the University of Texas, Austin, and she's a researcher, has as a developmental psychologist has gone and found every study on uh, spanking that she could possibly find and was unable to find one study that supports the benefits of spanking. Um, multiple studies show that there are a variety of negative outcomes, including including reduced compliance from the child, aggressive behavior. Spanking children tend to be more likely to spank others. And uh, she's been teaching us all that we need to know about spanking. Dr. Liz, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Uh, so what are we supposed to do? Again, and, and how do we – it's so hard because if we don't think about it, if we don't think about why we're doing it and become intentional in our discipline, we will just fall into the habits of the fathers. Right. I mean, our parents are our first teachers of discipline. And so a lot of when we first have kids, our first thing is to do what our parents did. Right. And we may decide that works or doesn't work and then kind of change from there. But, um, you know, I, I think what's important to, to start with is that there's no particular behavior, like parenting behavior that will work all the time. Right. So I cannot say to you, you should always take away privileges or you should always use time out. You should always, like there's no one thing that works every time. And so I think that's important to say at the outset, there's no magic bullet yep. in parenting. Um, it, it depends on our child, the, chi- the age of the child, what the child's done, you know, kind of the temperament of the child. You know, some kids, if you just look at them sideways, like my daughter, <laughs> if I just look at her, she just break, falls apart, you know. Yeah. Whereas my son... He needs a little more. <laughs> he needs a ball to, to the head. Up a little bit, um, and so you know you have to kind of adapt to your kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's some principles that we can keep in mind when we're disciplining, and these are the things we should be. thinking Yeah, let's about. talk about those. So I think you know the first thing is really to to have kind of realistic expectations based on the age of our child. You know, we can't expect a one year old to be potty trained. You know, we can't expect 
a three-year-old to always, you know, make the right choices. Like we have to kind of, but a teenager, we have different expectations for. And so matching our expectations to the behavior is the first start, because I think a lot of times parents have unrealistic expectations and, and, and that gets them angry when the kid isn't doing it to make them angry. The kid's just doing it because they don't, you know, their mind isn't working quite the same way as an adult. Well, does. like a, a parent brings their newborn or whatever to a movie theater and, and then, then the child wakes up, and then the child right. ruins the movie. Well, okay. I mean. Right. So that was an unrealistic expectation and, you know, and, and kind of a selfish expectation uh-huh. that, that they can go ahead and live their life the way they want, and their kid's just going to get dragged along, and right. everyone else is going to have to suffer. I mean, that's, that's not realistic. You know, there's right. a couple months where you're just not going to be able to take your kids out, or, you know, a couple years, you know, and then, you know. But be real. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, some of that's just we don't know, do we? If it's our first child, we don't know. But by by I I have six children. By my last child, my expectations were so low. It was crazy. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) are they breathing? Okay, we're good. As long as they're breathing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So sad. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's probably true as parents have more. I'm I'm the oldest of five, so I got the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Everything was tried on me. That's exact. You were ruined, weren't you, Liz? (laughs) That's right. You were the experiment. That's why I do this, huh? (laughs) That's so good. Now you're figuring it all out. So principle number one, realistic expectations. Right. I think uh, principle number two is, you know, setting clear limits. And so this is the beginning part of discipline that, you know, not hitting does not mean no discipline. And so from an early age, you can set limits on kids and say, okay, this is okay. This is not. This is what I expect. And kids understand from a pretty early age, even before they can talk back or, you know, even speak, really, they can they can understand things before they can really say them. Right. And so I think early on, parents need to be talking to their kids and explaining why they're doing things and explaining why things are not okay. You know, but little kids don't need discipline exactly like they don't need punishment because they don't they're just understanding how the world works they don't need to be punished you know starting at age three is when kids start to understand and start to understand that they can not tell the truth and so you know then we can start using more discipline um and so one of the first things you can do is logical consequences so making the punishment fit the crime basically So the child writes on the wall, they have to wash off the wall. Um, they break something, they've got to put it back together, or they've got to use their allowance to pay for it. or There's got to be some kind of logical tie. So they see, okay, when I do something in the environment, it has a consequence, and I've got to deal with it. You know, and that's one of the lessons we want kids to learn going forward, is your actions have ramifications. Oh, it's so true. I mean, in real um, world, this is going to go on the rest of their life. If they can mm-hmm. learn it at five, huge advantage. Yeah, exactly. And so along with that is giving kids practice making choices. You know, and early on you can do silly things like, you know, do you want to wear the red socks or the white socks? Yeah. It's not, the question is not, do you want to wear socks? Like, that's a given. The Duh. question is, yeah. do you want red socks Which or white color? socks? Yeah. So they have some control over their environment, but there's an expectation that there's going to be socks on the feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that you can kind of slowly give kids practice making choices because, again, a lot of life is making choices. And we want our kids to go out in the real world and make appropriate choices. And so, you know, the sock thing is a, a simple example. But as kids get older, you let them make other choices in a safe environment so they can kind of learn, okay, if I, if I make this one choice, if I decide to stay up late, I'm going to be really tired the next day and it's going to be hard for me to get up. Right. Um, you know, and so experiencing some of those natural consequences from their choices is, again, important. If we make all the choices for them, then when they go out on their own, they have no experience doing that. And so part of our job is to give them practice doing that. I love um, that. 
So that's that's pretty important. It's also true that kids really thrive on positive reinforcement. And so giving them positive attention when they do things right is such a huge way to get them to behave. Yeah. We think that we have to only react when they make do something wrong. But in fact, if we only give them attention when they do something wrong, guess what? They're going to only do things wrong. That's it. They want our attention. So what you've got to do is give them attention for the good stuff. You know, you're doing a nice job sharing. Thank you for putting your dishes away. Thank you for tidying your room. Thank you for sharing with your sister. All of those things, you know, you're doing a good job with this and that. That positive phrase is going to reinforce and make that behavior more likely. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to remember that all the time. And, and you know, when a kid's already done something wrong, that's unfortunate. You've got to deal with that. But the rest of the time, we've got to be doing this positive reinforcement and positive discipline. And you don't need um, to be perfect in all of this, right? I mean, no. Kids no, are, gosh, no. They're, they're going, I mean, yeah, they're pretty dynamic and they're even pretty forgiving if you can go, you know, be real about it. Yeah, and I, you know, and I, something I do with my kids is I admit when I made a mistake. Yeah, there you, you go. Know? And, and they appreciate that. They're like, "Oh, she's fallible," you know. She, but she's willing to tell me and say, "You know, I should have. That was not right. You know, I shouldn't have raised my voice. I, you know, that was not fair to you. And I, I apologize. And I'm sorry. And I'm going to do better next time." What should because I do? Because when I start admitting I've made a mistake, all of my kids pull their cell phones out and start recording it, <laughs> and they want to put it on YouTube. <laughs> So I'm like, okay, I have to take their phones first, then we admit uh-huh, it. Right. But there's something powerful about a parent being a learner, right? Because that's just showing, yeah. you know, mom and dad, we make mistakes. We're sorry. And, and, and it just says we're learning. We're all learning. It's just learning. Right. And it makes it, it makes it kind of comfortable for them to admit when they've made mistakes too, which are learning opportunities. You know, if they never tell us about their mistakes, then we'll never know how things are going with them. Yeah. And they're going to be hiding stuff from them. We want, from us. We want them to be able to tell us things that are going on so we can give them advice. If they never ask us, then we, we never have an opportunity to actually give advice and to kind of give them positive guidance. So true. See, it's like you're a pro, Liz. It's like you've studied it's this. It's a long time. <laughs> but I guess that is part of the key, though, huh? We have to, as a parent, you, you have to keep learning. You, I mean, it's not yeah. natural to just parent. Parts right. of it are Nobody's hard. born knowing how to do it. Right. So, so we got to learn. Um, any other principles? We've got about a minute left. Um, you know, the last thing is just to kind of be prepared and kind of, you know, think about the situations you're going into with your kids. You know, yeah. uh, you know, a classic example is if you go to the grocery store with your kids, you've got before you get in there, you say to them, "Okay, we're not buying candy, we're not buying sugar cereal, but if you behave, then you know you can pick out, you know, a pack of gum or whatever it right. is by the a end, treat, right. or they can watch the screens when they get home or something yeah. to kind of prepare them ahead of time, and then they know they know what to expect, and they know that they're not going to get that treat if they misbehave in the store." Um, you know, you don't want to be crazy and say, we're going to leave the store yeah. because that's not reasonable. Like, you've still got to get your groceries. Right. So don't don't say things that are not reasonable because then if you don't follow through, you know, being inconsistent and not following through is kind of the worst thing. Yeah, they've got you then. Oh, yeah, the kids take advantage of that all the time. <laughs> you know, they know, oh, my parent says that they're not going to really do it. Yeah, that's the worst. Totally. They're never going to listen to you. So, you know, being prepared, being consistent um, is pretty important, I think, in discipline as well. That's awesome. Well, Dr. Liz, we appreciate you. Uh, and great article. Again, keep up the keep up the research. It's Sometimes it's hard to combat something like 
uh, spanking without the data, without the research. So we, we need your work, your great work. Uh, Liz T. Gershoff, that's her name. She is at the University of Texas, Austin, and uh, great work. Again, if you want more information on what she's doing, just go look up her last name, Gershoff, G-E-R-S-H-O-F-F. You'll get right to that CNN.com article. Good stuff, my friends. We're going to take a break. Hour number two, wrapping it up. Nice, tight bow, putting it on the shelf for you. Hey, when we come back, we're going to be talking to an an expert, Ron Hager, who's going to talk to us about having a whole healthy life, how to create a healthy life in all aspects of living. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side, your guide to life. We uh, try to give you the tools, the ideas, the insights that you need to create a healthy life for you. We won't tell you that there's only one life or one healthy way to do things. You get to decide, but we will give you the research, the ideas, the tools and somehow connected to all the latest and greatest uh, news as well. This uh, is one hour that James likes to call utopia. It is the it is the moment he looks forward to most of the day. Is that true, James? Yeah. Yeah. Well, all three hours actually, not just one. Good point. Way, way to help. That was really good. Yeah. Just it's it's so packed with entertainment and fun. Jam packed. Jam packed. Thank you, James. Yeah. Just a little bit of enthusiasm your way. Appreciated that. I felt the vibe. Yeah. It was a cool vibe. Speaking of vibes, uh, did you guys learn about spanking then? We don't do it, right? That's the new rule? Yeah. I don't know. Like you said, whenever you get to that point, it kind of feels like you're out of control. Yeah. So maybe it's not even a spanking discussion. It's just a control, self-control. If you've obtained self-control... And you have five other options instead of spanking, and you still want to spank, then I guess it's your choice. I'd suggest at that point you probably wouldn't want to. Yeah. You know how that is. You yeah. can't force people to be healthy. And I, I believe me, I like spanking. I like I like a good spanking. I like to go No. I it's hard. I was I grew up that way, and it, so I'm trying to change me. I'm not just trying to tell everybody else how to live. Hey, you got some headlines for us? I do. You talked about uh, Bill O'Reilly earlier in the yes. show about some of the things going on with him. Well, actually, we talked about that, I think, a couple days ago. We talked about it a couple days ago. I think we mentioned it earlier. I don't know if it was on it was, the air. I think it was we, off the We air. just have all these conversations yeah. about what's going on. Because Bill was getting in trouble. Everyone was, like, accusing him of— He stands accused of misrepresenting his coverage of the Falklands War mm-hmm. in 1982. He was in Buenos Aires. There was a riot. Yes. He uh, said there was a bunch of things that happened. Other people said there wasn't. Well, on Monday during a phone conversation, he told a reporter from the New York Times— that there would be repercussions if he felt any of the reporter's coverage was inappropriate. And his mm. quote is, I am coming after you with everything I have, 
Mr. O'Reilly said, you can take that as a threat. So he's like, he's going to use his status kind of a bully pulpit. He's going to take on anybody that misreports his situation. Wow. In his opinion. Yeah. Yeah. You have seven people saying something else, but he doesn't think that's correct. He's so going to take them on. Interesting. Just kind of like to sit back and watch. Well, it's interesting when reporters start reporting on reporters. Again, that seems to violate one of the great journalism rules of all time. They're becoming the story. Yeah. So it seems like they're all violating their own rules. Yes, but they're so gleeful at it, too. They're just like, yippee. That's where spanking is necessary. (laughs) Just reporters. Reporters and politicians. Chinese shoppers. Yes. They're they're celebrating uh, Chinese New Year. For sure. Uh, one of the long, I guess, history, there's a long history of traveling from China to Japan for mm-hmm. shopping. Really? Japan okay. has a lot of high-end goods. Turns out a lot of those high-end goods are made in China, but they're oh, not sold in China. <laughs> so they have to leave China, go to Japan to pick up the goods that were actually created in China. Yes. So they go to they go to Japan, the hottest selling item what right now. What is the hottest selling item? A bidet. Really? High-end bidets. A bidet, or as my children call them, drinking fountains in the bathroom. <laughs> right. So the, they cut the models they're looking, feature-rich yeah. models. Like the heated seats. Heated seats, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Like the select comfort of bidets. Right. Right? You're, you're 45. Yeah. Okay. The select comfort. The, they start around $320. They're wow. all electronic. Is that a good price for a bidet? I don't know. But mm. that apparently is the hottest selling item for Chinese New Year. Really? That's interesting. Don't you find that interesting? I do. When I, I heard mean, that this morning. of all things you could buy off selling off the shelf are bidets. There's food. There's all kinds of things. And bidets is really the highest selling luxury item. Yeah. It, the, the trend has started to develop sort of a political voice oh, also what? because the older crowd uh-huh. is saying you're going to another country. To purchase an item when they make those items in China. Why don't you purchase Chinese yeah. first? And then the younger the younger crowd is, is saying we need this freedom to do what we want to per- you know, we it's Get our money, our let back. us yeah. we can buy our bidet wherever we want to buy our bidet. <laughs> they want to be they'd be able to buy the best products wherever yeah. they may be. So there's kind of this political thing going on in some of the papers. What if the whole what if it started like an insurgency? Is this the revolution? No, it's not going to be the The bidet revolution. Yeah. The day for the bidet. There was the umbrella revolution in Hong Kong. Yeah. That was, you know, short-lived. Yeah. And now maybe a bidet revolution. But it's harder. It's it's a harder symbol because you can carry an umbrella, like, to a movement and go, everyone can put their umbrella And it was useful against tear gas. That's totally great. (laughs) And pepper spray, yes. But, you know, I guess in a bidet you could wash off the spray. But you'd have to have water. But you can't just carry the bidet to a, you know, to a movement, a civil rights gathering or a free rights gathering. We have to work on that. Yeah. Anyway. Sunday night's Academy Awards were the least watched since 2009. Up, oh, see. 16% drop from last year. I contributed wow. to that. A largely non-commercial crop of best picture nominees is what they're blaming That was on. the problem. A lot last of those year it was Gravity and uh-huh. there were several other movies that I had actually seen. Yeah. So I watched. I was uh-huh. like, well, I've, I've watched like half these movies. This is great. And now this year, some of the movies didn't even come out until January. No. And some of them, I think the Bird, what's the first one called? Bird Cage? Bird. Birdman. 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 
Birdman, I think, only did like $34 million or something yep. in sales. I mean, so very few people have seen it. Just bird people. The people who voted saw it. Yeah. They, they get screeners, and then there's some other places, limited release. So it makes it kind of tough when you're trying to generate interest for people to go see a movie yeah. like that. So. Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I, I feel like I'm out of the loop. They said it was the second lowest among 18 to 49-year-olds, which is a key demographic. My Since demographic. they started keeping track of it in the early 90s. So. Interesting. Well, you are Sad. The, the Academy is disconnecting itself from us. I feel distant. Yeah, do you feel distant? Yeah. From the Academy. You got any more headlines? Uh, 300 new emojis coming to your iPhone? Ugh. Oh, yeah. What am I going to do with the other 600? That's right. They say in uh, the next iteration of the software. They need to delete some. They, I mean, we don't need all of them. They're uh, going for inclusivity with uh, different skin colors and 32 new country flags. Wow. So you can represent, you know, a Baltic nation or something. Interesting. Yeah. No, no. I mean, Ooh. it's just emojis. <laughs> yeah. Not, not interesting. I use, I think, three. You use three? I use three different. Which ones do you use, Matt? I use uh, big eyes. Okay. I use... Um, uh, clap hands. That's about yeah. I don't. <laughs> that, that's two. <laughs> I, I use others, but they're not appropriate. Yeah, you started thinking like, wait a second. Probably. Yeah, that one actually I don't just two. But it's I use smiley face. Yeah, you do winky smiley face too. I've never done winky smiley face because I, I don't get all of the different. I don't get all of the different because some of them I feel I, I don't quite understand. Like this one's blushing with a wink. All the like different connotations yeah. with all the emojis. Yeah. What am I saying when I when I send the blushing winky smiley face? Yeah, I thought it meant like ah, can't breathe. <laughs> There's a keyboard you can get where everything you type comes out as an emoji. Why? Because apparently there's a language involved. People, people have written books people. on their phones with emojis. People, stop it! <laughs> just stop it! See these? This is ah. Oh, is it too it. much? It's too much. We've we've passed it. A line too far? When you have 900 emojis and it takes you 10 minutes to get your emoji in your text, yeah. It's over. You miss the moment. Yeah, the moment. It's not funny anymore. You know, in the old days we didn't have 900 emojis. We would just talk face to face. What's that? That's and boring. then I could make wink eyed smiley blush. <laughs> blush. Why face. would you do that? <laughs> It just that's how I would communicate. Good job. I like you. You're wonderful. Talking to people. Blush. That just comes across as awkward. It still does. It is awkward. It's just awkward. Anyway, whatever. We got a great uh, show. Last. This is the first time Ron Hager's going to be on the show. He was always on the morning show. And we have got him on our show now. Ron Hager is a professor here at Brigham Young University, associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences, and he's going to teach us. He's going over time. I want Ron to see if he can get me exercising. Uh, it's a really big test, but if he does it, we have three hundred free emojis and a bidet from Japan that we're willing to give him. Ron Hager up next, going to be teaching us about kind of a more holistic view to look at your own health your own life up next right here on the Matt Townsend show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In the house, a great friend of the morning show. And first time on the morning show with Matt Townsend, uh, Dr. Ron Hager is here. But he's, he's, he's really been great to get to know. He's the most underdressed guest we've ever had on the show. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> I do have clothes on, though. No, you do. That's the great part. <laughs> okay. Uh, Ron's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at Brigham Young University. His expertise is in chronic disease prevention, which, uh, you know, I get, this is what I want to get in with you to talk about, Ron. Um, our approach, our view, I guess, as a culture, as a society, we... We seem to not approach disease the right way. Not the right way, I guess. We just seem to approach it in a kind of a, a very reactive way. I, when I, I feel it, I now I know I've got it. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, all a person has to do, for the most part, is ask themselves, when do they go to the doctor? That's true. And it's, you know, when they feel terrible. Of course, you might say, well, when do I take my car to the mechanic? Yeah. Well, when it doesn't run right. But there's this there's this sort of attitude or aspect of prevention that I think we're missing out on. Now, when it comes to dentistry, a lot of people have bought in. I think the dental profession has done a very good job, and they kind of have this figured out. Most people see a dentist and have no symptoms or signs. or Maintenance. Exactly. They just know that if they don't want dental problems in the future, Mm. they've got to go in once or twice a year without any symptoms or problems, and they've kind of bought in. So we don't believe it. That's kind of a preventative. That's a that's a preventative model. Exactly. Versus a, just a reactive model. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when it comes to the the chronic diseases that, you know, we, I talk about in my classes and things, uh, these are the big killers in our society. <clears throat> things like uh, heart disease or other types of cardiovascular disease. These are the number one killers. I mean, hmm. cardiovascular disease kills nearly a million people in our country every year. Uh, and not all, but a, a lot of that is actually what would be considered premature death before the age of 75. So in oh. other words, it's it's not only robbing individuals, but if you think about, you know, the relationships, it's robbing families, yeah. it's robbing businesses, it's yeah. robbing Money, cash creation. Yeah, you know, when somebody, you know, dies prematurely. So it's a big deal. And I have not coined these terms, but I use them frequently. Uh, these kinds of diseases, like cardiovascular diseases, uh uh, cancer, uh, type 2 diabetes especially, um, obesity. Uh, these sometimes are called diseases of affluence uh-huh. because they've made comparisons between countries. Yeah. For example, countries that are more versus less affluent. Now, in less affluent, like maybe a third world country, you're going to be uh, dealing with things more like, uh, you know, infection. Right. Um, which we don't, you know, really have a lot to worry about, uh, you know, or measles or something like that. Uh, you know, because uh, in in more affluent societies, those things have been addressed and taken care of. So what has risen to the top in these societies is, is these other kinds of diseases. Cholesterol. Like I've just, yeah, cholesterol, blood pressure, uh, blood sugar, all of these things. So uh, another term that you hear frequently is uh, uh, diseases of civilization or my favorite, diseases of choice. Uh. And, uh, yeah. and and I use that term a lot, diseases of choice. Now, how can you say that somebody chooses, for example, to have a heart attack or cancer? Well, nobody's going to choose that. So that's not really the, the appropriate context, you know. That's not where you're choosing. That's not the choice. Right, exactly. People don't choose, you know, one of those diseases, but they do choose how they live their life. 
And there's just plenty of evidence, just hundreds, if not thousands, of research articles. And even more important than that, Matt, common sense. Yeah. I mean, you, you already know you're having a hard time getting up from your chair. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and And you tell me, I mean, for example, smoking. Not a lot of people in the United States smoke anymore, but in some other countries, it's still a real problem. Uh, but even in the United States, we're, you know, maybe somewhere between about 20 and 22 percent of the, the population still smokes. But do you think it's possible, really, to go up to somebody who's a smoker? Maybe it's somebody you know or not. I don't know. But somebody that's smoking and and say to them, hey, you know, do you realize that smoking is bad for you? It can cause some really serious health problems. And then for them to react as if they're stunned, like, oh, I had what? no idea. You're kidding. Right. Yeah. So, so the same thing, because everybody knows. We know. And when, when we're honest with ourselves, we know if we're not physically active enough. We know if we put on 20 pounds over the last five years that that's probably not what's best for us. We know that if we're eating right in the very instant we're eating it, if it's something we should be eating or not. Yeah. You, you know. You totally know. Yeah. So so that's why I say these are diseases of choice. I'm not trying to, you know, be rude or offend anybody by, you know, telling them that a loved one that's passed away from cancer chose yeah, that. They that, made wrong choices. Right. So if you look at the, the research evidence, because from that you can extract data and results and numbers, 70 to 80, in some cases 90 percent of these most common chronic diseases are said to be preventable. They, preventable. Your diet, your exercise, your intake, if you're smoking or not. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, yeah. smoking's the big one. If if a person's a smoker, the most important thing they can do for their own good health is to quit. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can cut your risk, say, of of a heart attack by 75% within five years. Just by stopping. If you quit smoking. The, uh, did you see what was happening in Puerto Rico? They have legislation coming up because there's, the childhood obesity levels are about 10% higher in Puerto Rico than in the United States. Right. I guess the United States is like 18% of children are obese yeah. on the BMI scale. Right. And 28% in um, Puerto Rico. So there's a new fine for parents if you have obese children. They're, they're they're proposing like a six or eight hundred dollar fine. Yeah. Unless you get that child into classes, training, health development. Right. I mean, but it's interesting because you make it about choice. Well, it is about choice, but obviously now we're going to mandate the choice. But well, and I'm not. I'm now, not. You're not saying that. But, uh, no, I'm not a big fan of you know more government intervention uh, be, because a you know a person has their agency and they should be able to. Um, exercise that. But I understand where they're coming from because parents have a responsibility for their children. We each have responsibilities. Now, there's more of a mindset today that, you know, I'm my own person. I'm independent. I can do whatever I want. Nobody can tell me to do anything. I'm free. But what you choose to eat, Matt, doesn't just affect you or whether you have a disease or not that's a, a disease of choice doesn't just affect you. Yeah, It affects Close, close people close to you, loved ones. It affects businesses. It affects health care. It affects insurance premiums. So yeah. when people choose to live an unhealthy lifestyle, one that's not conducive to health, they can't say, I can do whatever I want because this only affects me. People's uh, unhealthy choices affect me, affect you, not just not just in small communities or families, but globally. Right, right. So, well, and, I, and patterns and habits. And we absolutely. teach our, I mean, how much of our eating and the eating behaviors are familial and just 
raised in our own heritage and our own tradition. So Puerto Rico is not too far off because, yeah. uh, you know, there is there are genetic predispositions, but generally, you know, in these disease cases, you know, they can only account for about 5% hmm. of, of, you know, people who are going to get a disease no matter what. Because there are going to be people who do everything sure. right. That's right. Um, but only about only about five percent of the cases, so it's the exception, not the rule. And a lot of people blame genetics, but if you go back and you look at more like traditions, things that are passed from generation to generation, and it's not just about eating; it's about a whole lifestyle. And some of this isn't just familial; it's societal, right? Because our society has changed. We, you know, the the epitome of success now is to be so efficient. That you don't have to do anything. Yeah. You know, that you can accomplish a lot of work with very little effort. That's true. And, and, and that's, that's kind of oxymoronic a little well, bit. yeah. Uh, especially when it comes to health. So, for example, we sit too much. Yeah, we, I was just noticing. You're we, standing I, I during stand. the show. Uh, I'm sitting reclined yeah. uh, with my feet on a bidet. Yeah, my goal is to make it so that eventually uh, – in fact, maybe next week we'll talk about some sitting research that shows that sitting is – uh, how much time you spend sitting is uh, very intimately tied to all-cause mortality or death. Really? So maybe by the next time I, I come in, you uh, know, I'll, I'll be able to talk you into standing up. I wish you would. <laughs> okay. I'm going to actually need you to wheel me to my office though. <laughs> before we do that. Let's take anyway. a break. We're talking with uh, Dr. Ron Hager, who's an associate professor of exercise sciences here at the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. When we come back, he has a very interesting way of kind of looking at prevention. And maybe how we we you know how we prioritize prevention in our own lives, our own health. So stick with us. More with Ron Hager right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM one forty three BYU Radio. BYU. Everybody to the Matt Townsend Show in the house, Dr. Ron Hager from the Health Sciences Department here, or Life Sciences Department here at Brigham Young University. He is um, he's his one of his ex- areas of expertise is in prevention. Uh, what's it, what's the ex- official term, Ron? Um, well, it is it is disease just, pre- disease. Yeah, yeah it, it's just disease prevention. Prevention. I mean that that that's the focus because we're we're talking about diseases that. That, that I think, and, you know, there's plenty of evidence to show that are primarily preventable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. in fact, it sounds like pretty much most of them. Now, now, why don't people wrap their head around this very often? I mean, if these, if, if there's so much of this as a problem, even what might be considered epidemic, why is it so hard, you know, for people to make that, that, that transition or to, to understand that we're talking about things that are highly preventable? Now, my, you know, one of my theories on that, and, and again, there's some evidence to support this, is that the consequences oh, of, yeah. of the behaviors are really far They're apart. They're deferred, right? Yeah, exactly. it's a delayed effect. Yeah, so, you know, we're talking about maybe, you know, a pattern in your lifestyle that's developed early on, maybe, say, even in childhood. Yeah. But, but clinical symptoms and, you know, real health problems aren't manifest for decades, like maybe four or five or six decades later. So how do you... How do you connect, 
your what you're doing now to something that might happen 40 years from now, people have a hard time That's with true, that. Huh? Yeah, they have a but real hard time with that. The human brain doesn't think 30 years down the road too well, does it? No, but you know what's interesting is in some cases, people can wrap their head around that. Like if they wanted to, uh, you know, I, I know people who have, you know, lived in apartments, you know, for most of their life and they've always wanted to buy a house. And right. so they've set a long-term goal to save and get themselves in a position. It might take them 10 or 15 or even 20 years. So I know people can do these yeah, kinds of absolutely. things. I just think that they just don't make that connection. Now, if a person, you know, sat down and ate a double cheeseburger and then within, you know, hours, minutes, or maybe even a day mm-hmm. uh, had a significant health complication that could be directly tied to that, to, yeah. co- to consumption of to that, that product, hamburger, then they probably wouldn't eat like right. that very long. Right. And that's true, huh? But that's just not how it works yeah, for people. Yeah, if we could have an allergic reaction every time we ate a Big Mac, we'd, we'd have something. But some of this, too, goes systemic, doesn't it? It's almost like yeah. how we approach medicine. And it's, it seems to be changing a little bit. It seems to be that there's a little stronger movement in prevention away from just reactive you know, preve- measures yeah. to preventative measures. Maybe give us you, – you had a really okay. cool metaphor. Yeah. So a, a metaphor that I've used before in my classes uh, because there's by, – by definition, there's at least three kinds of prevention. There's primary prevention, which is mostly what we've been talking about this morning. Uh, there's secondary prevention, which has to do with things like uh, routine screenings and, um, and uh, regular checkups, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, early detection kinds of things, you know, like for prostate cancer. You know, if that's detected early enough, it's very, very treatable. If it gets beyond a certain point, like a point of no return, you know, it may have metastasized and gone to other places in the body. It's too late. Yeah. So prevention uh, in terms of screening, uh, you know, for early detection. Uh, and then the third kind called tertiary care or tertiary prevention. And this is where much of our current healthcare system resides today. And like like we said, you know, when we first started talking, you know, when does a person go to a doctor when they're sick? Well, maybe, you know, maybe if they had had more of a primary prevention approach to all of this, they wouldn't be sick in the first place. Now, there's a place for tertiary prevention or sure. tertiary care. You know, if a person is skiing or, yeah, emergent or, 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 care, or whatever, right. you know, and they've got a compound fracture, you know, in their arm, you know, you don't say... You know, well, that'll take care of yeah. itself. I just got to wait. You know, you got to go get it taken care of. So there's a place for it. But in terms of this metaphor, I remember hearing once a story about a a, a, a road that kind of went through a mountain pass, and it was very treacherous. And you know, if you got too close to the edge in your car, it would fall off the cliff. And you know, and and, and the you know the passengers and driver of the car would be dead. Um, and and that this was a real issue. It was a very dangerous stretch of road, and people were. Uh, driving off on, on accident, of course. Uh, and so, you know, the, the local community said that we, we, we can't put up with this anymore. We've got to do something about this. It's just it's not acceptable to have all of these accidents and these deaths. So we need to put more ambulances at the bottom of the cliff so that when people do go off, we can get them care more quickly. Yeah. See, that that's tertiary care. Yeah, too late. So more ambulances at the bottom of the cliff. That's kind of where we are now. Now, I, I want to be fair to the, the healthcare care system, which sometimes I call a disease care system, um, they are making progress and they are moving more in a direction. I mean, you actually now see billboards on the right. side of interstates that say, you know, you know, colorectal cancer is preventable. Get screened if you're over 50. Mm-hmm. You know, so they are. It's tra- happening. They yeah. are trying to make it more 
you know, presentable to the public and get awareness, you know, uh, levels up. Uh, but secondary prevention in the case of, you know, the metaphor of the dangerous mountain pass and, and the road would be like to put up um, some signs or some indicators that, you know, hey, slow way down or be very alert or look out because there's something dangerous ahead. And, you know, that's going to affect a fair number of people. They're going to say, you know, especially if I'm driving and my wife is the passenger, she's the one that's going to reach over and hit me and say, hey, did you see that sign? You slow down. Right. Um, so, you know, that that could be effective that's helpful. too. That's helpful. That's helpful. But primary prevention would be to say, you know what, we, we, we're going to shut this road down. We've we've found an alternate pass through the valley a to get around way, this a prettier, mountain, a health, yeah, or or whatever, exactly. Yeah, and that's where we need to go. And that's where I said dentistry kind of is. Yeah, right they, now they tend to be more preventative. Absolutely. Talk to me because as the devil's advocate, I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, but you know what, Ron? Some people want to just drive that dangerous road. They want that view. They want that high. Yeah. They want that exciting. Yeah. So you're making it all boring. Uh, what what is it? Uh, uh, you know, eat, drink, and be, be merry, merry for tomorrow we die. And there's plenty of people out there with that attitude. And I guess that can be the choice, but you also can't be surprised. You can't have that as your choice and have surprise that right. you've got a chronic disease now. Right, right, because, you know, behavior and consequence are linked. The unfortunate thing about, you know, this attitude of I can do whatever I want and I can do the risky things. Yeah because I like them, is that it, it really doesn't just affect that person. Um, as I said, it, it affects us all. And, you know, so even some governments, like you said, Puerto Rico, and even some states, uh, and even some cities like New York, you know, they've yeah. had all kinds of stuff the in beverage, the media about, yeah. about beverages and trans fats. And, uh, you know, Denmark has yeah. actually banned the use of trans fat in the commercial food supply. Wow. And when they did that... Uh, their their mortality rates uh, for cardiovascular disease, especially, dropped significantly as a nation. Amazing. Um, so so there are ways to regulate. There are things that uh, uh, you know governments and uh, and organizations can do. But ultimately, and I think there's a level of responsibility there. Matt, sure. But but ultimately, it comes down it's to the you. person. It's the individual deciding that they are going to accept personal responsibility for their own health. And 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 health isn't something, you know, you go to the doctor to get. It's, no, it's actually have something. It. It's yours. You have it. It's yours. Uh, if you don't have it, it's because you've done something yeah. usually. Uh, and it doesn't mean that a person is going to be free from disease or free from uh, disability. Uh, some people just uh, have misfortune in their life and uh, you know, and they have disabilities or they have uh, disease issues in their life. Uh, but when it comes to wellness, you know, a, 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 I mean, my feeling is a person could have a terminal disease condition yeah. and still have optimal wellness because it For their is state. because it is yeah. an individual I thing. Now, one of the problems that we face is that we try and make health and wellness some kind of a standard right. that's the same for everybody. everybody. And that's never going to work. No, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Hey, on our way out, Ron, um, what's your favorite quote? Give us – You, I know you have a lot of quotes. What's a yeah. quote, one of your favorites that has to do with this topic? Well, 
th- this one comes from Dean Ornish. He's a physician, and he yeah. did he did a lot of early research. Maybe you've heard of the yeah, Ornish the diet. Ornish diet. Or, yeah, he was yeah, he did a lot of research and actually showing that heart disease can be reversed. Wow. Okay, and he said poor health is not caused by something you don't have. It's caused by disturbing something that you already have. Oh, Healthy wow. is not something you need to get. It's something you have already if you don't disturb it. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. It's true. It's yours. You've got to go grab it. Dr. Ron Hager, thanks for joining us. I'll be back. Thanks. We'll have you back. Tons. We thanks, need Matt. your insight. <laughs> We're going to take a break. By the way, I'm standing now. Ron's got me on my feet. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking to the guys down there from BYU Sports Nation, finding out what they've got on their show coming up. Uh, more fun, more interesting insights coming up right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. That's the hoedown music, which means you know we're going to BYU Sports Nation. Uh, down in Studio B, Spencer Linton, Jerem Jordan, how are you doing, gentlemen? We are fantastic, Matt. How are you doing today? Good. Do you like the hoedown music? Oh, we love the hoedown music. We jam out to it every day, man. Do you? Do you? <laughs> I, you know what? I, we have video, and I didn't see any jamming to it. You didn't see any jamming? No. You didn't see any dunking? No, no, no dunking, nor I'm jamming. I'm telling you, man. Every, well, okay, maybe not today. You okay, caught yeah. us. Okay. The one time you have your cameras yeah, on us looking at us for that specific moment. I still don't believe you, by the way. Well, by the way, uh, we watch you all the time. You watch us all of the uh, time? It's, it's not just weird. one time. Are we on the air? Uh-huh. We're on the air. <laughs> Here's a study for you guys. I need to know this because um, we just had uh, Professor Ron Hager in the office here in the studio who said basically this. If you sit for more than 11 hours a day— your chances of dying of a disease like some of the, the basic kind of lifestyle diseases, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, goes up by 50%. If you, does that wow. count? Does that, is that including sleep time? I would assume no. Uh, no. Okay. That, you okay. don't sleep sitting, do you? No. Well, sometimes, actually, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> watching, the, watching ESPN. That's another day's yeah, conversation. I understand. <laughs> I understand. No, I understand. You don't have to divulge that. Yeah, so no, that would be sitting. So I, I'm just proposing we're going to start doing the show standing. Okay. And I just would suggest you guys do the same thing. Well, Listen, we're only an Wolf hour. Blitzer, if Wolf Blitzer comes in here, maybe we'll stand. Wolf stands, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he stands. Okay, I'm just trying I, to help you guys. I want you to live longer. No, I, I am a huge proponent of the following two things in a meeting. Have all your meetings standing up. Yes. They won't be as long. No, yes. Because everyone's like, oh my gosh, I'm getting And have donuts. And have donuts. And then the third thing is just go around the room and ask everybody, what do you need? Not like, what's going on? Yeah, like, yeah. Let's just do the job. Let's go. The keys to meeting success, Matt. <laughs> See, You're not going to get that anywhere else. That's free. I was going to write what? a book on the premise of those two. Now I can't. Motivational meetings. You should do it. I'll help you write the book. <laughs> It'll be a really short book. We could go <laughs> on tour. It'll just be a tweet. Yes. It's just Jer- three. It's three points. Jeremy Jordan, Matt Towns, and teaming up for a book. Forward by Spencer Linton. I'll you call guys. it something like Seven Habits of Highly Effective Meters. Meters and greeters. <laughs> you know what? Uh, yeah. Oh. Anyway, maybe just stand a little bit more. Okay, don't, don't, I'm, don't stand, worry about I'm stand up right now. Hey, I'm what's on your show today, gentlemen? Uh, let's see. What's on the show today, Jerem? We're going to talk about BYU's chances of getting into the NCAA yes. tournament. We're coming down the backstretch. Hmm. Last week of the uh, regular season. Next week is uh, Vegas. Uh, mm. And then... 
Jennifer Hampson's going to be on the show. BYU's uh, she just dual... signed with the Los Angeles Sparks. Yeah, wow. Led BYU Big in volleyball to the national title match in December. Now she's going to play hoops. She's especially. a pro baller. Yeah. Yep. We'll talk to uh, Dan Nielsen as well as the women's basketball team, and then John Brooks of uh, the swim team. They just won a conference championship over the weekend. You're touching them all. They have a kid named Jake Taylor who is competing for a national championship in the backstroke. He could be an Olympian. Are you serious? Yeah. He's the best BYU athlete you haven't heard of. Wow. That's you know what. That's talent, because uh, I'm more of a floater than a swimmer. <laughs> Everyone likes watch sw- watching swimming in the Olympics, right? Oh, for, for sure. For some reason, we just don't get into it in college. By the way, there is no competitive floating bracket. That we know of. Yeah. It's out there somewhere. There, there's intramural water polo at uh, BYU. True. There's a lot of intramural Listen, stuff. Listen, you're full-time now I know. at BYU, I'm so you start. can play intramural without oh, yeah. paying. No, totally. Intramural water polo. This might be a thing that we need to do. Can Are you, you going to wear... be on our intramural softball team, Matt? Oh, for sure. That's a real thing. BYU broadcast. Is we won really? the championship last year. Did you? Oh, you know what? I'm I'll... not going to say what division, but we won it. I, I'll be there. And if I'm not there, I'll just I'll send my people. <laughs> Your people? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that I, I am a great baller. I don't want to brag. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> but, but I'm a great baller. I just have to get rid of my old plantar fasciitis. Just hey, nice. I know what, I know what that is because I covered an athlete in the NFL for like three years that was struggling with Can that. Can you call him and ask him what he did? Antonio Gates is his name. Okay. Oh, I know Antonio. San Diego Chargers. Yeah. Yes, he had a severe case. Of that. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you on that. Right, would you, by the way, mine is just as severe as Antonio Gates. As, as Tony. Uh, uh, yeah, I call him Tonio. How do you determine the severity of plantar fasciitis? Well, can you walk, or do you have to have people push you around in your chair? It was a grade grade three or something. That's that's how we determine it up here. It's grade three of severity. Well, guys, have a great show. It sounds like a fun one. Yeah, always entertaining to talk with the Matt Townsend. The Matt Townsend. And keep standing, boys. Keep standing. Okay, I'm standing again. Rise up. Standing now. Take care. Over and out. (laughs) Bye. See ya. Wow. They're going to figure out my plantar problem. I thought I had it figured out, and then I went running and blew it again. Stupid. I told you, it's a reoccurring injury. I know. It doesn't really go away. I'm thinking of having our first guest, do you remember today? The bionic guy. Right. I was going to ask him, but I thought it was selfish. A plantar, bionic. I want a plantar implant. Okay. You know what I mean? Is that selfish? Yes. Uh, at, the, at this time of the show, we like to do a little round robin to find out what we learned. This is something we like to do. It starts today. James, what did you learn? <laughs> it's our long-held tradition. Let's start right tradition. now. It's a long-held tradition. We're starting now. Now, I thought it was really interesting when we were talking about spanking earlier um, and uh, that there was a statistic that was given that said three-quarters of physical abuse started as discipline. Isn't that interesting? That was crazy. Three-quarters. 75 to 80% starts as just me disciplining my child. Then it got out of hand. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of scary. That's very scary. It also probably tells you, you know, you could slide pretty quickly, right? You can slide into the slope of now abusing. I mean, I'm sure Adrian Peterson wasn't thinking he's abusing his child. He was just switching him, giving, giving him the you, switch. And if you heard his comments, that's yeah. exactly what it was. He saw it as I'm helping my child to learn right from wrong. That's right. And you do it by kind of shocking the system this yeah. way. That was huge. And that's the way he was brought up, and he sees himself as being in a good place. And uh-huh. Let's get my he child He attributed it, right? That is what led him to his NFL greatness was the switch. That, that seems a little crazy because he may be overlooking the fact that he's an incredible human specimen. Absolutely. With other gifts and traits, probably discipline, discipline in there somewhere. 
I mean, if you had a body like me, you could blame it on your parents <laughs> right. beating you. Right? It's their fault. But, yeah. yeah. But no, it's 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 hard because there there are beliefs held there, there are habits, there's maybe a family tradition. I don't know if you really hold yeah. it up that way, but there's this this history of it, it being something that is has worked and something that my parents did it that I right. you know and, and you all, you kind of have to I guess tackle an issue or were my parents wrong in doing that yeah and, and and then think of just geographically certain areas are more prone to spanking more likely to spank i mean so yeah we have to evaluate where our parents were that was one of my big learnings there is it's you have to learn other skills right so life isn't just about one skill one tool we're not in the we're not in the wheel world anywhere where life is all you need is a wheel there's more tools. Now we've got, you know, engines. And we have... There's other ways to deal with a misbehaving yeah. child. We have tools. We have real skills. Yeah, that was cool. I liked the robo guy, too. That was a big story for me. I was amazed. This Dr. Gregory Clark, uh, who now is helping people use that have prosthetic limbs be able to actually feel... And use their limbs. I had no idea. That was one of my key learnings today is I had no idea how much just the feeling in your hand helps you know where you are in relation to the rest of the world. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that was cool is that that um, he said that none of this is, is actually has a, a like mechanical hand yet. It's all in the yeah. program. And so the person who is doing these tests was feeling their, their thumb or their hand in a computer. Isn't that wild? Yeah, that's and crazy. And being able to see it and move it? Yeah. That is way cool. But that also tells you your hand is in your head. Yep. That's what's so weird. But if I can get that to work, then all of a sudden, I mean, I was just thinking, how powerful would it be to eventually shake someone's hand if you're somebody that has been missing your hand? Oh, This is going to take Skype calls to a whole new level. By the way, speaking of Skype calls, we learned that uh, the guy going to, the, going to Mars... Has Skype problems. Still working on learning how to use that. So, and I don't want to diss him, but he better figure that out. He's going if, to Mars, dude. When you go to Mars, it's permanent, and if you can't get your Skype to work, oh, you will be so mad. <laughs> That's sad. I did find the discussion with uh, Sports Nation about stand-up meetings interesting. That you know, where did that come from? I don't know. Jerem, Jerem is like a motivational speaker, but. I have been looking into how to conduct effective meetings. Have you? Because I have to conduct a meeting almost daily No, here. in fact, this, and the staff is, they've been asking me to ask you when you were going to read more about effective meetings. Yeah, I've been working on that. How you, to do it, what are the best techniques. Yeah, I like that it. That kind of thing. Because I'd like to keep the meeting short. I would too. I, think that, but I would we, like to make it so I don't have to go to the meeting. We get in there and there's a lot of stories and mm-hmm. it kind of you know, it can go kind of long. Yeah. And one, think, of, yeah. one of the, the, the suggestions was the stand-up meeting. That's a great way to do it. Well, and and you, I've noticed that there hasn't been any donuts as well. No. I, and that's one thing they say is don't bring food because it just makes it longer. Oh. Well, yeah, and you can't talk. I think what you ought to do is distribute donuts. At the door when it's over. Or you know, when they just, walk out the door. That's what you do is you go buy. Here's about, your reward. Get out of here. We have five people that go to the meeting or so. You stand at the door with five donuts and you just start eating the donuts. <laughs> <laughs> for, for every minute this takes, I eat another donut. That's yeah. It. That's not a bad idea. So it's a penalty. That's how I used to teach the kids in Sunday school. I'd get little ropes of licorice and I'd tape them with their names to the wall and I just start 
cutting down the rope every time they were messing around. <laughs> you get what's left on the wall. And then I would class. eat their rope. It was great. Lots of candy, huh? Mm-hmm. And these kids were like twenty. Oh wow! They were mad. They were so mad. That's good. So yeah, maybe our meetings will be stand-up meetings from now on. I like that. Who gets the responsibility of eating the donut while uh, the meeting? Well, of course me. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. It's I, my I'm show. I'm busy. I'm running the meeting. you yeah. got to talk, and I'll fold the donuts. And we'll go, Matt, what do you think? And he goes, oh, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> A cloud of powdered sugar comes flying out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, see, this is the great, this is the reason why we do the show, though. To give you all these tools. So now, without even knowing it, we, we talked about standing meetings. That was not part of the show. No. That was not meant to be there. But it's the brilliance that comes out yeah. after you talk about spanking and robot yeah. limbs and exercise By the way, and sometimes tips. we try to tie them all together. Yeah, are you going to try today? No, because you did a good you job yesterday. Want, I know, but you don't want robot limbs and spanking to go hand in hand. Yeah, I, was gonna, I wanted no to see intended. how you were going to... No. So instead, you want to use the advancements in technology, and we're going to skip to actually basically to use the research. So this is all about research. Today was research day, right? Hands that lead to feelings, that lead to connecting to other people. All of that goes together along with better relationships with your kids. And on top of that, health, preventative, not just reactive health, preventing By the way, you can't just keep spanking. That's just reactive health as well. It's all about prevention, my friends. You're the best. Again, we can't do the show without you. So thanks for joining us. We're here every morning, 9 to noon Eastern time. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. We're out until tomorrow right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.